go for it, Alan. And uh, I will see you all in three hours or more um, because it's Chuck. I know I don't have to be here exactly <laughs> at 7 p.m. my time. Well, Prince, thank you for thanks you thank you for keeping the doors open. And Alan, hello, uh, welcome, my brother. Hey, Chuck, it, and uh, thank you, Prince. You are irreplaceable. Uh, so is Chuck, uh, but uh, I'm very replaceable. So me too. I will, <laughs> yeah, I I'm kind of a retread at this point, Chuck. But you know. Uh, we have a busy night tonight. Uh, the newswire is on fire, and we're not going to put it out. Yeah, this is, uh, I would say this is one of the busiest nights we've had, uh, I don't know, in may maybe in weeks. So lots of stuff to talk about, lots of developments uh, ready to go. I hope you can catch me out. Uh, Alan, we'll see. I think I did my homework, but uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm sure you've done your homework. Uh, Michael is going to be with us in, in just one moment, but I, I want to begin uh, just by directing uh, folks' attention to the very first tweet uh, in the nest, which will uh, lead us to Hersan. I actually put up yesterday's Hersan map and today's Hersan map, Chuck, but I want to begin with a beautiful shot of a pontoon uh, on a waterway somewhere. Uh, at dawn, what did you make of that little video? Well, you know, I guess you, we've framed the video in the uh, internet drama for for a second. Uh, what, what we're seeing there is a self-propelled uh, Caesar 155 millimeter gun uh, provided by France, although I believe Sweden may have provided them as well. Uh, it is being moved on a on a pontoon section, which is being pushed by a boat. And uh, to the surprise of no one who has actually been in the military, this is how uh, resupply and transport operations are conducted in a riverine environment. Uh, coincidentally, and uh, you talk about a fortuitous time for this video to come out, folks, uh, you can look uh, as you're watching it and you see the, the light in the sky there, that sort of red thing. That's usually uh, a dawn situation. Notice how calm the river is. Although you get an afternoon glass off, what we're probably looking at, looking at there is the sun coming up. That indicates that this waterway itself goes east and west, just as you might think it would in the vicinity of Hersan. Ipso facto, unless this is really some great movie special effects, I think what we're looking at is uh, a barge-mounted uh, resupply effort uh, in the vicinity of Harrison. So uh, there we go. And when you're, you know, when you're doing a Ukraine news feed and you're on social media, and the topic is about Ukraine, and I was doing the math today, in the last 500 days, I've put up somewhere close to 1,500 maps. And I will be the first guy to admit, with breaking information, I don't always get it right. But I get it right a pretty good proportion of the time. And most of the maps get somewhere close to 50,000 views. Every now and then we'll go up to 200,000 views. 
And most people are pretty satisfied with the work, but some people aren't. And corrections and information and updates, I am always happy to receive. And I thank people for taking the time to do that because we want to get it absolutely as right as we can. But when someone tries to move the needle uh, about personalities instead of information, I mean, you know where that's going, right? You know where they're starting from and you know where they want to take it. And I just want to thank everybody before we get started. I want to thank everyone who, who rose in my support. I truly uh, am humbled and I greatly appreciate it. And the other thing I want to say is, look, if, if I've got something wrong, please tell me. I mean, I am happy to look at it. You know, we'll get this information. And unfortunately, uh, both sides <laughs> often don't give us the whole truth, right? Or they don't give us all the information possible. So there's a lot of figuring it out. And especially, like I said, if we're putting out 1,500 maps, you know, and believe me, folks, I, one, of the, one, of the, one of the snide comments I like so much is uh, he pays people to do these maps. Folks, this is me, okay? It's, it's one guy. If you like, I'll fire the whole staff, but uh, it's, it's pretty much just me. But thank you so much. I want to say that, Alan, before we got started tonight. I thank everybody so much. And, and uh, welcome, Michael, here real quick. Just want to say good evening and, and uh, same Chuck. I really appreciate what you do. And uh, uh, one thing that I noticed earlier, I don't know, um, you're familiar with Michael Clark, uh, former Rusi. I, I thought it was quite noteworthy that he actually uh, came to your uh, came to your same conclusion. And so, you know, that's that between your your conclusion and him supporting that. I, I really, uh, to be perfectly frank, uh, I think that 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 speaks for itself. That thanks so much. And. Uh... You know what? I think another way to judge this too is, uh, you know, it is, it's very easy to throw a hand grenade, but I tell you what, uh, there's not many of those kind of grenade throwers that'll come up, ring your doorbell and apologize, right? They don't do that. That's not their bag. Uh, that's not what they do. And, uh, you know, being a bully, it always comes from a place of weakness, folks. It always comes from a person who has extraordinarily low self-esteem. That's why they lash out. That's why they do it. So thanks, everybody. I really appreciate it. And we will now move on to slay the Russians uh, from sea to shining sea. Yep, uh, all the way from uh, Kherson to Kupiansk. But just one more thought about maps, Chuck. Mapping has actually changed significantly in 540 days of this war uh, because uh, information... In some cases, uh, must be kept quiet uh, for operational security by uh, Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, Russia frequently reports uh, shelling villages that uh, it has claimed uh, to be uh, in control of. So essentially, uh, Russia is saying they are shelling uh, their own troops. This has happened, of course, but uh, on every single day, no. Uh, so when Chuck talks about piecing things together, uh, information from uh, Ukraine, information from Russia are two pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. The other thing that's changed about mapping, of course, uh, Russia constructed extensive fortifications. And there are a couple of accounts that I think have done a great job 
uh, placing those fortifications, in some cases geo geolocating them uh, and keeping track uh, of how they have been extended, when they've been extended, uh, reinforced, uh, etc. Another great map I saw today, Chuck, it was reposted, I think, by both you and Thomas Kleiner, uh, was a map of where both Russian and Ukrainian artillery emplacements uh, have been taken out all the way along the battlefield, all uh, 650 miles of it. And, and that was a significant map. We may get to that at the end of the night. But you're right. We have such a long way to go. We have to go right to Kherson. Uh, we'll we'll hop on that uh, uh, on that uh, uh, pontoon being pushed by the boat. You can almost uh, you can almost hear the birds and the ducks coming alive uh, in that little video. And we'll go to the third tweet in the nest. Folks might want to take a stop at the second tweet. That's yesterday's Kherson map. Compare it to today's Kherson map. It is continuing to be a great developing situation for Ukraine. Yeah, and the, the principal difference is uh, the earlier map folks will have the round inset of the uh, vicinity of uh, Kozhatsi, uh, the Harry. Uh, and the major adjustment is I've got uh, some later information that adjusts the line of contact. There is a tributary of the Dnipro uh, called Konki, a uh, very small tributary, uh, Konka rather. Uh, just as a coincidence, and we know there are no coincidences in war, it also flows essentially east to west. And more to the point, uh, I had a very gracious reader uh, update uh, uh, my note notification on uh, east and west and the probable flow of the river. Uh, was able to determine, uh, obviously, a gentleman with some celestial navigation training, which, by the way, folks, as a naval officer, I almost flunked. I'll just say that. Uh, but that the course of the river actually uh, goes towards the southwest, uh, to which I, of course, concur. Uh, I would just point out that the Conca River does exactly that. So what the principal difference in the earlier map and uh, today's map is the adjustment of Ukrainian line of contact, which I have uh, sources, gracious people, uh, folks that uh, honestly, another reason why I didn't back off uh, from this with the heat is I have, I have been gifted by some wonderful steadfast forces that uh, sources that I can say have never been wrong once and 400 days of our relationship i have never gotten bum information from them and i have also gotten information uh, as much as 24 hours in advance of any other source and i will tell you that i am always as circumspect as i can be uh you know it's safety first and uh, this information is often released to me uh incrementally but in the case of the contact here, uh, I was getting almost uh, hourly updates. I don't usually get information in that timely manner, but I did in this case. And everything that I was told uh, was confirmed later by official sources and uh, triangulated by the Russians themselves whining about it. So the line of contact now conforms uh, to the Konka River. 
just north of uh, Lahari. Uh Ukrainian forces are expanding their control over this, uh, this island. Uh, and again, by their mere presence, by the mere presence of a credible Ukrainian force on, this, uh, on the south bank of the Dnipro, it is compelling the Russians to deploy thousands of troops uh, away, uh, you know, maintain them here and not deploy them uh, to the east-west battle space. You know, and, and people have asked, well, f- why don't the Ukrainians push south uh, here from, from the Dnipro? You know, that's, that's a legit question. But just by maintaining these two toeholds here, one by the uh, Anatovsky Bridge and one here at Cossack Camp Landing Site, they are fixing Russian forces in position. In the, uh, in the Russian mill blogosphere, they're also complaining that uh, some Russian naval infantry forces have been taken away here from the, from the uh, Kherson battle space and sent north where things are heating up, and we'll, we'll be talking about that. But in this case, the Russians were whining that their forces will no longer be uh, sufficient to contain uh, a Ukrainian breakout exactly the way you want the enemy. You know, you want them to consider this a dynamic and dangerous situation. And uh, when asked, do I think the Ukrainians are going to prosecute crossings, uh, you know, further operations south here? You know what? I don't think they are. Because this is a minimal expenditure of resources and manpower, and it has a, a resonating effect on the enemy. And I think that's, that's sufficient, you know, at least for now. That's good bang for buck in my estimation. You're, you know, you are not slugging it out and slaying the enemy or, you know, you know crushing them uh, in their material assets. But what you are doing is fixing them in an irrelevant position uh, vis-a-vis this 650-mile-long conflict zone. You are putting these guys in the side pocket right? This is the sideshow of the sideshow and you're fixing them there and they don't dare move because if they do, Ukraine, if Ukraine senses that this situation, uh, if it it senses that Russia is not adequately prepared, it will come across the river in force and it will grab the M14 M17 highway junction and Russia knows it. So, a great dynamic place to watch here. And uh, I promise you for the next week or so, this will be the first or the second map that goes out every day. Uh, Chuck, how large a force do you think Ukraine uh, has landed across the Dnipro so far? You know, I, I don't want to say exactly, but I will say this, and you people can get an idea. It is sufficient so that uh, Russia is not going to attempt to cross the Konka River and engage them. So we we know that Russia tends to attack with company or platoon size or some hybrid force of about that size. Uh, so I would say this, we can do the battle math. Everyone knows you need at least three to one, uh, preferably four in my book, five to one superiority at the point of attack and the Russians do not feel that a platoon or company attack 
against these Ukrainian positions would do the job. So, I mean, you can do the math. Uh, I'd also note that what was being moved on that, uh, on that barge was a 155-millimeter artillery piece, highly mobile. Uh, it also is capable of firing uh, precision strike Excalibur rounds, uh, and that beautiful Caesar, which, by the way, Axel told me is from Denmark, not Sweden, made in, made in France, a joint effort between Denmark and France. Uh, it can also fire the improved conventional munitions, which are cluster munitions, which are extremely effective against dismounted and mountain, mounted Russian troops. So I think the Russians don't want to pick a fight here. Uh, I don't think... I don't think they're going to try to take back this landing position. And I do think there's going to be another crossing. Uh, it'll be either north or it'll, it'll be uh, downriver or upriver, but there's going to be another crossing. And that will spread the Russians even farther. And, uh, you know, my insets sort of take up a little bit of the highway map, and I'll, I'll put one up tomorrow without some insets. So people can get a look at the at the roadways around here, and there aren't very many. The M17 highway coming up to Kherson, that's it. That is the sole line of communication and supply. And that means that Russia's effort here, south of Kherson, it's hanging by one road, and that's not the way you want to fight. So the, the element of surprise, uh, uh, really very few ways for Russia to reinforce whatever they have here, uh, a very unsafe airspace uh, because of Ukrainian air defense for any close Russian air support. Um, it seems to be a pretty well chosen uh, spot to see what the Russians are made of down here. Have you heard any reports uh of Russian retreat uh, south from the banks of the Dnipro, south of Oleshki. Well, they, you know, Russia doesn't want to give up uh, anything, but they're, they also, uh, you know, they, they don't want to, they don't want to allow a breakout. Uh, they don't want to expend the effort and the men and the materiel necessary to, to clear Ukraine off off the south south bank, and in 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 both cases, uh, the M14 highway crossing point, the Anatovsky Bridge, which is closer to the city, and the Cossack camp landing site, in both cases, Ukraine picked locations that there are extremely limited avenues upon which the Russians can can approach the landing site, and. Especially in the case of Kozachi Lecheri, there is one little gravel road that comes up there. Uh, and of course, north of Oleshki, uh, there is simply the M14 highway. And there are maybe two or three roads that, that come up there. But uh, again, the Russians don't want to put the effort into doing this. Uh, right now, I think, and we'll, we'll take the tour of the battlefield, Right now, Russia is is trying to comb out every single, uh, I was going to say something that soldiers say, but every single individual that they can find that can pull a trigger, they are trying to send north. 
And I would expect a couple things to happen here. I, I would expect Ukraine to make another uh, demonstration. And again, I'm not using the technical military term of art. It's using the civilian word here. Demonstration around Kherson to remind the Russians that they need to stay here. And uh, that's going to retard Russia's, uh, you know, they're trying to find everybody they can to, right now to send up to Velika Novoslika, to South Vorkiv. Uh, you know, there, there's big battles going on there and they will have big consequences. But Ukraine is going to take advantage of any favorable development around Kherson and they have got the manpower to do it. And Russia just, you know, they have to worry about it. So it's good. I mean, we're, we're seeing that situation where Ukraine is keeping Russia off balance. Russia has to react and if you are reactive in a battle, right, think, think of two boxers. If you're in there and you're slugging it out with Muhammad Ali and all you are doing is fending off his punches, man, you're not going to win. You're not going to win that round on points. And uh, it, you're covering up and clinching and trying not to get clobbered. That's not winning, right? So we'll see. And I expect some more activity here in Harrison just for that reason. Great. Thanks, Chuck. Just real quick check, uh, just quick order hands, uh, just to let everybody know, uh, Fletch, D-Man, Oyvind, Meta is ordered IC. Um, real quick though, Chuck, if you're okay, I just wanted to ask you a question about the Kherson area. Um, the, the, uh, looking at the, the area around Novokalkova and Kalkova, it looks like there's a lot of high ground just to the east, east of there. Um, and it's very, very flat in the area. What what do you think the terrain, what what element of that do you think is playing in the minds of what the Ukrainians may be doing in terms of that, like that high ground and just the terrain in general? I know we've talked a lot about highways, but it looks like there may be some high ground they can they can play with the east as well. Yeah, they you know that's another point that <clears throat> that Russia of course has to guard. Uh, in the last week, uh, Ukraine has conducted a couple of fire missions on Nova Harkova itself, and in one case, uh, destroying a, you know, a, a larger Russian headquarters element. Uh, again, the, uh, the road situation here is not necessarily so good for the Russians. The M14 highway between, uh, Kherson uh, and Nova Harkova, it it starts to depart uh, and move back from the from the river, almost fifteen, uh, maybe twenty kilometers, right? So that's twelve miles, maybe fifteen miles in place. Uh, for our Russian listening guests, I'll only say this: there are numerous places between the Cossack landing and. Uh, and Novarkova, that the Ukrainians could cross again and do so with relative impunity. And I'm looking at places in the map that Russian forces could not get there in time to stop them. And Ukrainian forces will also be aided in certain positions by bands of forest. And remember, this is a, there is a national park here in the vicinity, the Oleshki Sands National Park. And that means sand dunes, right? That means desert. 
And although tracked vehicles can get across sand, uh, wheeled vehicles, you know, military vehicles, you know, some of them can get across sand and you can deflate your tires and do all those other things. But what's important about those open areas and those sandy areas is there is no cover, right? There is, there is nothing to hide behind, nowhere to hide. And uh, we know that your million-dollar tank can get taken out by a $1,000 drone. Uh, and that happens. So this situation here, uh, especially, and we, we talk about how interconnected the battlefield is. So things that are going on 100 miles away and 120 miles away, they're going to be influenced by what's going on here in Kherson. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say within the next 10 days, I think we're going to see another Ukrainian crossing of the Dnipro. And uh, I, will, I will only say this. I think it's going to be closer to Nova Harkova than it is farther away. Great. Thanks, Chuck. Chuck, if you're okay with that, I'd like to just go to a couple of hands. We've got a whole gallery of people. So um, uh, go ahead and uh, Fletch. Go ahead and... Uh, all right, Chuck. <clears throat> How are you this evening? Hey, bud. I am good. Flip. Thanks for hey. coming up, Fletch. No worries, buddy. Uh, and, and nice to see that you were proven right today. You know, it must have put a smile on your face, Chuck. <laughs> now, uh, I, 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 I put a smile on my face. How many friends I have? That 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 put a smile on my face. You know. Well, I, I <laughs> I'm a frog man, so I thought I was right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I put a few good ones for you out there as well on the same issue. Never mind. Uh, you're right, and we can move on from that. That's good. Yeah, just on this area, Chuck, um, yeah, yeah, I agree with what you're saying on there. Um, I, I'm just looking at what evidence we've seen now. Now, we've seen that one um, pontoon barge um, bringing over. It, it looked like a Bodana to me. It, was it a Caesar, was it? You know, I thought it was a Bodana. Anyway, you know, similar similar looking things, aren't they? Now, if they thought uh, that... Sorry. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, but I'm, I was trying to turn this off and let you <laughs> let you talk. So please go ahead. Yeah. Now, because they brought that one piece, that that's you know the evidence is going to indicate, or we can assume that there've been quite a few other crossings with other, uh, possibly other um, items as well. Now, now this ties in with what the Russians were complaining about, you know, about four or five days ago that there was movement of heavy, heavy equipment near Nikopol heading towards the Kherson area. Um, so, you know, that, that that possibly ties in with that, if you know what I mean, you're bringing in heavy equipment. Now, I believe Ukraine has fire control over the whole area. Um, looking at the, the firm's data and your maps as well, um, they've certainly got fire control over Aleski and, and on the Conquer Bridge. Um, and I know they've got ATGM teams there already. Now, what I'm assuming from what I see on the evidence and the crossings um, that are going on, because there are going to be quite a few of those crossings going on, um, and looking at the area that Ukraine have and what the numbers were originally at Antotoskany Bridge, um, I mean, we're talking about quite a few hundred um, of, of the Ukrainians already over now. Um, look, looking at what, what should be the numbers there. Because I know when they made the raid, um, um, the actual raid itself, I mean, they lost a few people. Um, I was aware of that. 
um, which was unfortunate. Um, but, but you know, some of them stayed, but I know they've been bringing other people across as well. Now, now, now your first, you know, my first um, draw on that is, is that all along this line, and you remember I, I, we brought up about the Marines getting their training, um, you know, from 4-2 Commando. Um, now, each one of the, the groups of Marines in that um, 900, you know, near enough a battalion's worth of infantry troops, each group, and they're either four or sixes, and you'll know the, um, the, um, the, the boats they would have been allocated, the, the, the dinghies. I mean, the hard rubber types, you know, you can normally get a, a machine gun on one of them. Um, they, they've been, each group has been given a boat, <laughs> yeah? Um, now, all I'm seeing is here, where are they going to be used, right? And, and, and I'm, this is the question I want to ask you. Do you think they could do a harassing job all the way along the Curzon front, you know, or, or are they thinking of, getting over on the spit and coming in and having that as a supporting area because I think the spit is very important to this particular front. I mean, what's your view on that? Yeah, de definitely. Uh, there, are, there are naval special warfare raids going on continuously across the Dnipro. It is, it is an extremely porous uh, uh, front here. Uh, Lots of uh, traffic back and forth, uh, inserts and extractions of special forces teams, uh, partisans being uh, shifted back and forth, insertion and extraction of, uh, of intelligence officers and assets. And of course, folks, there's a difference. Uh, you know, a professional intelligence officer uh, doesn't carry his ID card, but he's a serving member of a service or an organization. And the actual spying is done by assets, right? Those are people who are uh, volunteered, co-opted, compelled, uh, encouraged uh, patriotic Ukrainians that are uh, in on the effort. And you would want to insert them or extract them for debriefings. Uh, specialized training uh, to pick up, uh, you know, equipment, supplies, uh, etc. And what Fletch is talking about, so uh, the Dnipro is one of the mighty rivers of Europe. As it enters in the Black Sea, there is a, a large delta. And uh, the extremity of that delta is the Kinburn Peninsula. It's kind of... Uh, looks a bit like uh, Cape Hatteras or Nag's Head. If you have ever been there, it's kind of a sandy uh, dune area, place of uh, great natural beauty. Uh, the Russians are definitely trying to hold on to it. There's only one road that even approaches it. It is the uh, P-57 highway. Uh, it's been sort of quiet for a while, uh, but Ukraine has, has been conducting special operations against the peninsula. Uh, in particular, the sorts of missions that a naval special warfare platoon might do is uh, you insert a team, they will come up to the roads and mine them overnight. Uh, you will uh, snap up a couple of Russian prisoners at, uh, from an observation point or a listening post and uh, bring them back. These are the kind of operations that don't necessarily uh, hit the information space but they keep the pressure on uh, 
Russian forces. And Fletch, to directly answer your question, yeah, I expect, uh, you know, I I wouldn't even estimate that these raids are going to increase because I think they've been at a pretty, uh, you know, an ongoing level here. Uh, You know, as we, as some time has passed here since the uh, original Kozachi uh, Harry raid, I, I can tell you that it unfolded uh, with a very small uh, special warfare element that crossed the Dnipro, uh, established a beach landing site um, somewhat in the neighborhood of three SEAL platoons, uh, three platoons of, na- of Ukrainian naval special warfare operators. And a, a naval special warfare platoon is actually about 16 guys. Right, we call that four boat crews. Four four boats with four guys in them, and uh, a boat crew is two swim pairs. Now that's a very loose, uh, you know, estimation because uh, we also deploy task elements, which are simply, you know, custom manned, handpicked uh, operators for a specific task. Uh, so these guys came in; they were able to, uh, you know. Get, land, establish a beach landing site, uh, get the, get the task units ashore, uh, with flank security, they were able to, uh, patrol South. Uh, they gobbled up a, a listening post. Uh, they captured it with their radios and their codes intact. And they used that radio to call in Russian forces saying, uh, you know, we have captured some Ukrainian saboteurs, uh, come on down and take a look at them. Uh, the major commanding and a couple of his guys show up. They are captured and they repeated variations on this move until they had captured somewhere in the vicinity of 40 Russians. So this was a breathtakingly uh, cool operation. Uh, in the next six to eight hours, they actually made contact within the village uh, and of course, the Russians this whole time are trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, they lost control uh, and lost communication with all their listening posts. They had absolutely no idea what was going on. They couldn't reach their commander. Of course, he'd been captured. And then as this developed, as, as we know now, the, uh, the captured officer turned, right? He uh, went over to the Ukrainian side. Uh, very quickly gave them actionable intelligence, right? Within within an hour of his capture, he was saying the minefields are here, the quick reaction force is here, I have this many men here. Uh, you know, this, this was a, that kind of intelligence to get that that quickly, to capture somebody in command and turn them, it, it's almost unheard of. Uh, this was a really splendidly executed operation. Uh, it started with three SEAL platoons, right? So that's 16, 16, 32, about 40 guys, 50 guys. Uh, there were some losses. Uh, my, my information says eight guys, uh, eight casualties on the first night. Uh, among them, some seriously wounded. Uh, I don't know exactly the number of killed, but they were killed. Uh, the beach landing site was secure enough uh, that these guys were able to be uh, 
uh, evacuated. Uh, I'm afraid that some of them had to be remained during the hours of daylight. The extraction happened at night. But as these guys were extracted, more more Ukrainian forces crossed. So there is, uh, I don't think I'll go into how many Ukrainians are there now, but the force is completely adequate to the task of defending this uh, this portion of the uh, of the island. So, you know, the, and what we just described that that is the kind of operation on a larger on, on essentially a smaller scale that goes on almost nightly yeah, all across uh, the Dnipro uh, uh, upstream from Nova Harkova and downstream. So this is the way the enemy is kept off balance, right? And for the Russians, getting sent to a listening post on the Dnipro River at night, uh, believe me, you write, you write a letter to your mom before you go out to take that post because you know you're manning a post where soldiers disappear, right? They just don't come back in the morning. Nobody ever finds them, right? Or you get droned. So by that mechanism, you know, Ukraine is expanding it, its control south of the river. It, you know, and, and these are the examples of how uh, special forces, th this is the best thing special forces can do. I mean, it's great capturing terrorists and that's groovy and, and chasing around hijacked airplanes. That's all great. But when you get your naval special warfare forces, your commandos, your special operations forces, to directly support uh, the conventional commanders by unconventional means, I mean that's when you're getting your that's when you're earning your paycheck. Great. So Chuck, um, let's go to G-Man real quick. G-Man, go ahead. G-Man, you got a question? Uh, yeah, question and observation actually. So I saw when I was doing my post um, based on the. ISW um, that uh, Russian mill bloggers had. Uh, G-Man, I think we lost your audio there. Can you hear me now? Yep, go ahead. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Russian mill bloggers claimed yesterday that the, the Russian forces in Kherson had, had swept Ukrainians from the, from the, the right bank. And of course, yeah, I'm going to have to recycle my audios playing, playing up here. Okay. Mine's thanks. acting up a little too, actually. Yeah, it just keeps muting. And, yeah. You know, well, keep, keep no, okay, going, G-Man. Give it a try. But I noticed, I noticed mine's yeah, turning I'll off on too. That's, it's weird. Also, I'm not sure whatever we heard, but mill bloggers are trying to say that the, the, the uh, excursions south of the um, Dnipro are failing and they've been swept aside. And that interpret that to mean that they say they're saying, well, we've su succeeded, so we don't have to look at that area anymore. Um, rather than acknowledge that the Ukrainians have had success here. Um, what's your, your thoughts on that, Chuck? Yeah, they don't. Uh, they, the Russians wouldn't report, uh, you know, that their listening posts are getting gobbled up. You know, they would, they, they wouldn't report that. Uh, they, 
you know, the Russian information warfare strategy, right, is admit nothing, deny everything, admit nothing, and make counter-accusations. So I, I, I have it on pretty good authority that the, the, the cross-river operations are, are continuing on a, on a nightly basis. And especially in these areas that, uh, if, going back to this particular map, those those blue striped areas there, uh, and much more. I mean, this map actually is is too closed in on Harrison. I think I'll put a bigger one up tomorrow to remind, you know, to remind everybody where the you know what the what the bigger picture around Harrison is. But uh, if you're a Russian soldier and you're within three to five kilometers of the of the river uh you want to button up at night right you don't want to be you don't want to be wandering around you don't want to be in any sort of a conspicuous position right like the big pile of sandbags that uh that can be seen in the moonlight you don't want to be there you want to be as hidden as you can be because you're going to get stalked and uh you know that's the kind of thing russians they're, they're not going to report that but that's another bread and butter special forces mission, right? Is you patrol in, you know, into the enemy's uh, rear, south of the forward edge of the battle area, and you come back with a prisoner or two. That's uh, that's what you want to do, and uh, leave a couple mines uh, as you go out. And I I have it on uh, very good authority that that's going on all the time. Uh, thanks, G Man. It, there is a definite audio glitch here tonight, but we'll keep our eye on it and uh, and just try to work around it. Uh, to Oyvind, uh, to Meta, to uh, Bruce and Steve, please. Good evening, Chuck. Great to have you back. Hi, Oyvind. Uh, good. I uh, thank you for staying up late, friend. I hope you're well. I'm well. Uh, I, I uh, read the, the tweets uh, that uh, you uh, you uh, you posted, uh, and uh, I saw all the the people answering. And uh, I, I, what I say in Paul, if you if you can't take the ball, ball take the man. And uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, it's. Uh, it's uh, it's hilarious, but uh, one of the tweets I, I'm not sure if you you saw it. It was a report from some uh, uh, partisans or uh, people who are on the in the occupied area who drove up the M14 uh, highway uh, as I could uh, see it from the map, and uh, also from very long south. To pass uh, Novakarovka and uh, where that's crossroad from Novakarovka come in, and further north, and there wasn't a single uh, control post by the Russians, not a single one. Can, what what do you take from that? Yeah, I know. I noticed that as well. Uh, I I've seen a, a number of videos of of cars traveling on these on these roads and there is almost zero traffic. Yeah. Is, is my audio cutting out as well? Yeah, you cut out a little bit. You said there was oh. almost zero traffic and then we heard nothing like zero. Yeah. Traffic. I got to watch, I got to watch the mic and it, it keeps turning off here. But, uh, 
a couple of months. Wow, this is freaking out. Uh, there was a Ukrainian collaborator, a member of the security services, sort of a turncoat. And he and one of his uh, cohorts were traveling on the uh, M-17 where they... Uh, I watched the response there. I watched the, the I watched video of the first. Yeah, Chuck, everyone is having uh, this mic glitch tonight. Yeah, we are. Yeah, it's really odd. Mine is uh, turning on when it should be off and off when it should be on. But anyway. No, four or five times, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm sorry, you guys. I'm, I've got to watch the button here closely. Uh Oh boy, I might I might try to recycle, guys. Is it me or is it everybody here? It, it's so far, it's everybody, Chuck. But um, I'm going to go into the back room and see if anyone has a fix here. Oh. I'll keep trying. But Ivan, you're right. There's there's not a lot of traffic on those areas, and it is that the checkpoints are few and far. And this makes for a much much more permissive environment for special forces. Wow, this is buggy tonight, folks. Holy smokes! Yeah, it sure is, Chuck. My apologies. We'll we'll keep things we'll keep things going. Appreciate uh, being patient. With oh everything. no, no worries. Oh, odd. Okay. Yeah, let's let's you know. Keep keep going, Chuck. Let's try again. Okay. I, I, Meta, do you have a question? Let's go ahead and try to reset things a little bit. All right, I try. Say if I'm <laughs> I'm echoing. Uh, or do you hear me? Okay, Chuck. Hi, Meta. We do hear you. Thank you for staying oh, up tonight. Thank you for being here again. I. I just have have to pick, pick your brain a little bit. You know, I, I've been following like Kraken from the uh, beginning of the war and I just love the special forces. And uh, my imagination sometimes gets out of hand. And uh, with these guys who have been trained, now there are a thousand and whatever. Uh, I heard it's 10% of the actual military guys that apply to special forces that get in. So they're pretty good guys. And, you know, one one versus 100 Russians, I think. But anyway, uh, I just wanted to pick your brain about, you know, what if they have this? I know in Finland we do Nemos and Pathis and Sisus, you know, they are these amphios vehicles, APCs, that, you know, both swim and, swim and are quite light on the sands and so on. And what if they are not going to East? What if uh, they are not going to Sabritsa and, you know, help in Melitopol or whatever? What if they are going to Armagnac, you know, in the armpit of Crimea? Crimea? What if they are just swimming? <laughs> What do you yeah. think about that? Well, uh, you know, I we 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 look we get used to looking at these these maps with a big broad uh, red swath on them, and uh, when I was 
I'm sorry, you guys. I gotta. I just have to watch this mic button because it it shows me when it cuts off. I we 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 see a big swath of of red, and and that makes you think that the Russians have a sort of unified and homogenous presence in their. And when I was covering the Syrian civil war, I used to map, uh, and I'd try to try to highlight a troop density color along the major lines of communication and supply. You know, for example, the highways and crossroads and places where I, you know, strongly suspected, uh, you know, a, a rational military practitioner would put a force. But when we're looking at the area here, south of the Dnipro, you can go pretty far in some places and not find a Russian at all. And it's in that void space, right, which uh, as a term of art in special operations, we call a semi-permissive environment. And uh, you, are, you are making spaces where you can operate and the Russians cannot. And it, it, it is really important when the enemy, the Russians, feel that their convoys aren't safe, that they're sent. You know, that you can sweep a road for mines on Monday, but uh, Tuesday morning there's going to be mines there. So, you know, that has a that has a an outsize effect, you know, that we don't we don't necessarily hear about. Right. We don't we don't we don't hear about every raid the Ukrainian forces are conducting. But, you know, it's going on and it affects uh, not just Russian morale and readiness, but. It, the the way they have to expend energy, twenty four hour guard duties, and uh, you know all of that thing, all of that wears the Russians down. It it uh, it limits their ability to conduct offensive operations because their defense in depth it has to go on in place, essentially out of the combat zone. I'm sorry, this is going out in and off, folks. There was another, there was a, a video that came up today. It showed uh, a training area where Russian soldiers were in what looked like basic marksmanship, right? Which tells me that the quality of people showing up from Russian deep, Russian troop depots, there's no reason that you should have to conduct I'm oh, sorry, you guys. That's okay, Chuck. So uh, we're going to try and, and get this fixed, if possible. Uh, so just stand by. Keep your eye on your mic button. I know it's a, a pain in the butt to do that. Yeah, uh, We're just going to run a t because this is happening to everyone, and we're going to see if a recycled cures it. If it cures it for Michael, uh, we can recycle you in, in a few minutes, Chuck. But just keep going. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. So, uh, looking at this uh, this training facility, it was of course stalked by a drone. So you got to watch, uh, you got to watch the Ukrainian targeteers watch this location. And what was going on there was basic marksmanship training. Right? These were guys zeroing their rifles. This is the kind of stuff that should have happened back in Russia. You shouldn't. You shouldn't have to conduct marksmanship qualification training that have been deployed 
in a combat area. Uh, so anyway, uh, this presented an extremely lucrative target, which was hit with an improved conventional munition cluster and a cluster artillery shell. This is exactly the target the Sigma was designed for, troops in the open. Now, on the grand scheme of things, was this like uh, the biggest hit of the week? No. But in sending a message to Russian troops who thought they were safely in the rear, conducting the most mundane training evolutions, and they get smoked. And that has an effect on everyone. It tells every Russian soldier that if there's more than 30 of them together in the open under a blue sky, we're going to get hit. That's great. You imagine what it would be like for you to try to do your job and, and have to wonder that every time there's 10 or 20 of you out in the open, you may catch an artillery shell tens of kilometers uh, from the zero line. So th those, you know, can, uh, inflicting those conditions on your enemy, that's not something that makes the news. You know, that one artillery strike, it probably doesn't even get plotted in the, in the daily brief. But it tells me a couple of things. Ukraine is operating uh, aerial surveillance uh, with impunity. Uh, they are picking off targets of opportunity and they're using armed propaganda and it's working. Uh, so we're going to go to Stephen, to Bruce, and then back to Meta. Uh, Stephen, go ahead, please. Uh, many thanks. Well, um, uh, hello, Chuck. Uh, we spoke very briefly last year. Um, if you remember, I was the pig guy. Anyway. Hey, um, hi. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for staying up. Certainly. Um, well, obviously, uh, the... Um, the Caesar uh, on the river caught my attention because I'm a boat guy. Um, and um, firstly, I would like to ask before I say anything else at all, uh, is it an operational security matter whether or not the exact location of that is identified? I, I'm, I'm sorry, Stephen, I just lost you there. I said, firstly, I would like to ask, uh, so I have a few comments about it and then I have a couple of questions. But the first thing I would like to uh, establish is, is it an operational security matter uh, if the exact location of that, of that little bit of footage is, 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 uh, is revealed? Because, you know, this is a, uh, a movement of a, of a um, you know, significant artillery uh, piece with uh, troops with, you know, identifiable units within Ukraine. So I, 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 I really would, I, this, I can ask a couple of questions, but I, I, the, the comments I was going to make, uh, I won't make if, uh, if it is an OPSEC matter. You know, I, I didn't check the video uh, for its <clears throat> geolocation. And I, I will have to assume that, uh, that those have been stripped. Uh, I have some pretty firm ideas where it likely is. And... Uh, uh, well, you know, let's just talk around where the location would be. Uh, and again, it, it was issued from a Ukrainian source. Uh, so let, let's, let's talk around that. All right, fine. But uh, it, it being issued from a Ukrainian source does not mean it's uh, ZSU. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I am, I am a um, Celestial Nav guy, and uh, I'm pretty sure I know where that is, if it is anywhere near the suggestion that you made. 
Um, I don't think it's actually exactly where you suggested, um, but uh, I, I can I can leave it. Uh, but basically, I can say this much: the um, if it is dawn, uh, the azimuth of the sun is completely incorrect. Um, uh, azimuth uh, yesterday was approximately sixty-seven degrees just before the uh, sunrise. So, nah. Um, uh, it could be dusk if it's somewhere near where you suggested, but there is one other location where it could be if it was dawn. But I, I, I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I agree with you. That's that. Uh, uh, you know, it, and it's fascinating, folks. If you're a civilian listening to this, uh, in terms of celestial navigation, you can really pick a location. Well, uh, given given the angle of the river, uh, the angle of uh, it's about twenty degrees above the beam uh, on the starboard side, um, and the uh, uh, the azimuth of the sun at sunrise is known, uh, you know. So, uh, yeah, you can. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure the Russians can figure it out. Any, uh, anybody with you know um, fairly basic uh, celestial navigation knowledge should be able to work that out very precisely. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll 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 leave it there. If 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 you'd like, you can DM me, and I can give you a pretty much chapter and verse on where that was. I think, and I, I can say this though, that um, uh, everything north of the Novokovka Dam, and that includes all the tributaries, were dro was dropped by well many meters uh, to small numbers of meters, and I have very direct personal. Knowledge of that uh, swam in the tributary of the of the, um, of the anyway, uh, and uh, and so if it is uh, um, in the Dnieper, it must be north of uh, a dam further up, or south of the um, of the Blown Dam, uh, and the reason for that is if you look at the um, if you look at the edges of the river, you'll see that all of the vegetation is. Uh, so you've got a lot of broadleaf vegetation, uh, and it's underwater. Um, well, everything north of the dam, uh, it's exposed a long way. <laughs> so I, there's that. You know, I I absolutely did notice that because if if uh, and it's just uh, an old habit. If I'm moving on a river uh, <clears throat> in a war zone, I I pay very close attention to the banks. And I absolutely <laughs> noticed that as well. And as you know, upriver there isn't much river. Allow me. Well, yeah, I, I, but the, the the blowing of the dam dropped the the depths of the tributaries, going a very long way north. Um, so anyway, uh, the uh, allow me a little a little anecdote. Well, uh, forget about the anecdote. I, yeah, I once corrected. I think I know where you're going. Yeah, I think I know where you're going. Who 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 um, who was in an area where the tides were not very well plotted. And he, he was reading the books and I, and and he's like no, no no and he kept on going to obey and I'm like mate 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 stop right now you're about to run aground do it stop now and he came back and I'm like trying to give me a chapter and verse on the uh, on the uh, tide tables that he had access to and I was like get your binoculars out and have a look at the shoreline. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what? I if if I'm in if I'm navigating and someone tells me that stop you're going to run aground you know what I do I go to all stop <laughs> because we, we can figure it out later but we won't be trying to figure out how to get the boat off 
right? Well, quite. <laughs> anyway, so the uh, the questions now. So I'll I'll, I'll move on from that. The questions um, uh, are okay. So uh, the Caesar, I think, has a, a range of. Uh, 40, I just checked it out on you know, Google, uh, 46 kilometers. Um, and also, it seemed to be going up or down uh, a waterway rather than across it. So it didn't look like a crossing to me. It looked like movement uh, from A to B using a river. Um, maybe that indicates the roadways aren't so great wherever it is. Um, but um, the thing is that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, uh, the left bank of the... Of the uh, Nipro south of uh, the, the dam is, yeah, sure, there's maybe a bridgehead, maybe, um, but uh, if, if it can be called that. But why would you be moving an artillery piece capable of be firing 46 kilometers across the river unless you had, I mean, you know, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a smart thing to do. Uh, so I, I'm just skeptical. I, I, it just seems to me odd, oh, you know, cr oh, I, crossing the river. I, 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 I agree with you. I, I do not think that that uh, artillery piece was being deployed to the South Bank. I absolutely right. do not. I, 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 that would make absolutely no sense to me. Uh, I could see putting other uh, more expendable artillery systems on the South Bank. But I agree with you. That, that is a high-value poker chip, and I wouldn't put putting it on the South Bank. I think the whole kerfluffle was about, uh, I think there were some people who don't think that pontoon sections are used in riverine transport. I think that was it, but I absolutely oh, okay. agree. I, 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 totally I don't think drama, that's on so the I, South Bank. Apologies to interrupt. I totally missed the drama, and I really don't give a shit about drama perfectly. Oh, I don't. Frankly, know. It's sort so. of like... <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, I don't pay attention to bugs that hit my windshield. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, thank you very much. That's that's all I had to say. Uh, appreciate it. Listening. Thanks, brother. Thank. Listen, thanks thanks for coming up. Always welcome, friend. And I, we'll have to go sailing. Oh, I can. <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. One day. All right. <laughs> thanks, man. Okay. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, on to Bruce. Back to Meta, and then we will be moving. Uh, uh, east along the battle line. Next stop uh, will be your Eve. Uh, Bruce, go ahead. Hey, guys. Uh, you, you know, in my world, a semi-permissive environment is what... Bruce, oh, the mic bug is getting yeah, everybody tonight. I think it is. Bruce, your audio... Yeah, okay. I'll watch... Okay. I'll watch the mic. Um, you just kind of answered the question, but I it, it, two things... That's such a high value on, on the Dnipro. The, the that's such a high value piece of equipment. Tap that mic button. Yep. It just struck me that they're putting it somewhere where they're not going to have to extract it in a hurry. And I, so if they are putting it on the other bank at the Dnipro, they feel pretty secure that they can stay there for a little while. And yeah, the other I, thing is, it indicates to me that. They feel, whatever that river is, wherever they are, they feel pretty comfortable that they've got control over both sides of the river. Um, that's it. Th thanks, guys. Yeah, and you know what? I on the South Bank, uh, simply because it's it's valuable. Uh, and as he pointed out, it's got uh, it's got considerable range and you you know risk to reward uh you're not going to gain anything really worthwhile to put it uh one or two kilometers across the river and south 
uh, into danger. So I do agree with him. I think the whole, you know, the whole issue was uh, a demonstration that this is the way you transport uh, heavy items in a riverine environment, and that is on a pontoon section. But I agree with both you guys. I just, you know, uh, if it was uh, a, a Soviet legacy 152 millimeter, uh, you know, towed howitzer, yeah, put that across because if the Russians grab it, you know, BFD, but uh, not a Caesar. Uh, thanks, Bruce. And Bruce, do you, you have a follow-up? No, thanks, guys. I'll save the the remainder of my time. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, keep tapping up. Alan, we lost your brother. Oh. Oh, thank you. And I'm sorry. I'm taking a time shock. <laughs> it's no, Maddie, you're yeah. always welcome. You're always welcome here. It's just, you know, uh, I have such an imagination that, you know, I'm still holding on to that Armagnac line. And I'm 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 really happy if there's a lot of Russians listen, listening and sending 60,000 troops to Armagnac now. But anyway, <laughs> I just, you know, chicken run, chicken run. That's what Ukrainians are doing to them. But, you know, um, I wanted to ask your opinion, you know, isn't it just the place for the special forces as they, the Russians did blow the damn dam, you know. So uh, at the same time, they flushed all the mines. So the special forces can move pretty quickly. I don't think there are so many mines uh, that survived that flood. And uh, I just wanted to pick your brain. What if... What would it do to the battle map if uh, Ukraini, Ukrainians took Armanyansk and the Konj Bridge, or what it's called, you know, the land bridge uh, there, Kong, Kong, Konger, what, what it's called. Yeah. What is your, uh, you know, what would it do to the battle if uh, Ukraine took Armanyansk? Thanks. Well, uh, you know, the... I, I I don't know if that game would be worth the candle uh, right now, but you know, w were they to put some effort into it uh, in the first in the first place, it would it would certainly uh, attract Russian attention. They would divert resources and men and materiel uh, in that direction, and anything that uh, that Ukraine does that takes pressure off what I think is the real game. And of course, I am not diminishing uh, the ferocity of combat any anywhere else along the battle line, which, uh, you know, every day we see demonstrations of Ukrainian valor all along the line. But in, in my estimation, the east-west section uh, from Kamiansky to Vuladar, uh, that's the money shot, right? That to me is uh is where russia has sort of the most to lose uh and uh you know we'll get to the area south of orheev here uh you know ukraine is making really good progress there 
and uh, they are approaching uh, positions that will put them within artillery range of Tokmak, which, by the way, is occasionally hit uh, every 24 to 36 hours, something in Tokmak gets hit. So, uh, you know, the other thing about special forces is they're really good about seizing objectives, right? Uh, that raid across uh, the Dnipro. Special forces are extraordinarily good. They use stealth, they use uh, massed firepower, but principally they use surprise. And they are good at seizing things, but we're not very good about holding them, right? We can take almost anything, including a ship on the sea, but uh, holding it is, is another matter. We need conventional forces to do that. Uh, but operating against the enemy rear, uh, putting them on guard, forcing them to expend uh, time, manpower, fuel in security patrols, uh, doubling up their efforts, uh, securing uh, locations that should be that are far away from the zero line, uh, getting demonstrations of uh, of what a deeply inserted special force with a drone, the targets of opportunity that they can call in long-range strikes on, uh, like that rifle range that forces the Russians to disperse forces. And, uh, you know, that means you have dispersed forces. They are, they are somewhat safer from deep artillery strikes, but then you overburden your, your communication system because you've got the guys all scattered, but you've got to whistle them up. Right. And that means whistling them up with a whistle would actually be the best thing to do because you can't hear a whistle 200 miles away, but you can hear a walkie talkie 200 miles away. Uh, and those are the ranges at which uh, Ukrainian signals intelligence has been picking up Russian signals for forever throughout the entire war. And the Russians have had to learn this painful lesson about communication security. Uh, at the, there was a, a meeting at uh, Izium earlier in the war where General Gerasimov was there and was likely wounded along with four or five other flag officers and half a dozen colonels when their briefing was, uh, was hit by an artillery shell. So that to me is, you know, that's the bread and butter of special forces right there operating against the enemy rear and, you know, fold into that equation uh, what Oyvind was talking about, that vast stretches of highway uh, in Kherson Oblast with no Russian checkpoints on them. And, uh, you know, that's what I like to hear in the intelligence brief before I go out, right? The Russians are, uh, you know, they're not policing the highways. You know, I'm not sure that was the the M14. I think it was the the smaller P57 that that report came from. Uh, on to Shaggy. Uh, then a final comment about this uh, crossing of the Dnipro uh, around Harrison. Then on to Orkiv. Shaggy. Thank you, Shags. Good to good to hear you. Thank you for staying up. Yep. No, I don't. But. Uh... Anytime you, any, 
I'm sorry, I got to watch the mic button here. Anytime you see the Russians cracking down on civilian movement or, you know, blocking and checking, it's usually in response to partisan activity. Uh, I, I don't have any data recently on Holoprestan, but it gets hit a lot by uh, by Ukraine. and Because it is also sort of the springboard uh, and supply point for Russian troops on the Kin- Kinberg Peninsula. But, uh, yeah. I will be putting up I'm going to go back to some of the other map projections I have. Okay, thank you, uh, Chuck. Uh, thank you, uh, Shaggy. Just one last comment on this map, uh, and then possibly a public service announcement from the back room. Uh, but, uh, you know, one thing that's important about this map, uh, the Russians have been shelling Hersan uh, from Oleshki. Uh, back in June, uh, June 3 or 4, whenever they blew the dam, uh, of course, from Oleshki, uh, the Russians were even, even aiming artillery at emergency workers, uh, saving flood victims across the Neep uh, in Kherson. Uh, meanwhile, the Russians did nothing uh, to save any Ukrainian who was flooded out in Oleshki. And so this makes Oleshki... Uh, I think, very important to the Ukrainians. It serves to protect, it serves to protect Kherson somewhat, uh, at least from close by fire, uh, and it means Ukraine can get to Ukrainian citizens who were left stranded uh, by Russian forces. Uh, so that is uh, one option. Yeah, okay. You know, it's hard. You, you've got to stare right at the mic button, and then it goes out. And the worst thing is, folks, if you are taking a drink of water, you look down in your horror and you see the mic button is on so people can hear you swallowing. It's bad. So, Michael, I think we are going to attempt to fix this uh, by, unfortunately, uh, rebooting uh, the entire space. Uh, I'll have a word about that. I'll have a word about that in a moment. Meanwhile, let's go to the fourth tweet up in the nest. It's or Kiev. <laughs> and I think my mic is back on. Uh, I, and so. <laughs> You're on, Alan. Okay. Uh, so we're going to go to the fourth. Tweet. Well, the you fourth... were on. I know. <laughs> the fourth tweet up in the nest is or Kiev. Uh, another point uh, where Ukraine is putting a lot of putting a lot of pressure on Russian forces and having some success. Uh, Chuck, watch your mic button, and let's go to Orki. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, I'm uh, sitting here. You got to watch your mic button, and I'm trying to look at the map at the same time. Okay, the business end here of this map and the uh, the topic of the inset is down uh, the TO four. <laughs> and the point of contact is Robotny. Now, over the last, uh, in the last 72 hours, uh, there has been really fierce fighting. Uh, Ukraine started out, uh, Ukraine started out massing units 
in that tiny band of forest that you see uh, to the northeast of Robotny. Uh, over the course of the last couple weeks, uh, there have been losses. Uh, I, Ukrainian and Russian infantry fighting vehicles and tanks lost. This is some of the fiercest fighting that we've seen uh, in 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 quite a while. Uh, get having a hard time actually getting a lot of, having a hard time getting a lot of timely and uh, and confirmable information from the battle space. But uh, as far as I know now, uh, Ukrainian forces are in contact uh, in the southern areas of Robotnik. I don't want to say urban areas. This is a this is a uh, very rural village. Uh, Ukraine has been carrying out air and artillery strikes against Russian forces. This is another one of those cases where the, this is another case where the TO four zero eight is not only a line of communication and supply; it is a military objective. Both sides are using that uh, as a line of communication and supply, and uh, and Ukraine is interdicting Russian reinforcements and resupply. Uh, they are pressing towards the next goal. Here is Novo Provkovka down where you see the uh, the TO four zero eight will take. So this down afternoon, one. <laughs> Go ahead, Alan. I'm sorry. I, I, that's okay. Uh, I was really just going to say, tap your your mic button there, Chuck. This is. <laughs> I, I I really apologize to everyone. It's it's not the fault of of report. It's the fault of Twitter. Yeah, we're. This is worse than college radio, but we're we're hanging in there, folks. We had crummy microphones. Now we have good microphones. Uh, anyway, there was uh, a, a, this afternoon, uh, Russia lost one of two Ka-52 helicopters. That was lost slightly. Uh, it was lost east of uh, Kopane. My information tells me that this helicopter was destroyed during a Russian attempt to sortie out of Kopane, attacking to the east in an attempt to cut the TO-408. Uh, and, and of course, now as, as nighttime falls, the battle is continuing. Like I said, this is, this is some of the fiercest fighting, uh, some, some of the fiercest fighting of the war. So uh, this is a place to, uh, to watch. And unfortunately, uh, neither side is talking much. But uh, again, some of the fiercest fighting of the war, uh, and some of the uh, we're we're talking armor on armor and IFVs on IFVs, and at night you can expect the Ukrainian forces to take advantage of their superiority in sensors and targeting. Yeah, I, I have noticed a lot of video coming out uh, showing Ukrainian uh, night fighting. Uh, and I assume a lot of it, I mean, it can be taking place anywhere along the line of engagement, of course, but I happen to think a lot of it, a lot of it is happening around Robotny, uh, south of Robotny, uh, and, and off towards Verbove. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, the other thing that uh, to keep our eye on, of course, is is Verbove. And Russian forces don't have an easy way. Uh, yeah. To, to fight both Robotny and Rebove. Uh, we talked about this, the, the T-0408 uh, tributary branches off in the T-0401, which heads up uh, in, in the direction of Rebove, but not directly there. So the heavier the fighting in Robotny, the more Russia will have to commit men and materiel to that fighting position. And per force, that, that's going to strain them uh, to fight Verbove as well. And as we, as we came on tonight, I was getting information that Verbove is heating up at this time. Uh, that is a case, again, of Ukraine and taking advantage of its interior lines of communication and supply here within uh, the Archive salient. So place to watch, and uh, this will be a map tomorrow as well. Uh, and truly a great example of driving Russians from pillar to post, uh, from Robotne to Verbove, uh, no easy way for the Russians uh, to get between those two towns. Uh, Michael? Right, and there in Robotny also there is uh, to the to the east of Robotny there is a, a a sort of defile that goes uh, down, and you know generally you don't want to maneuver, you don't want to have a hill overlooking your maneuvers, but as Ukraine can push south in in Robotny. As, they, as the Russians can be pushed back off those heights, then that lower terrain actually, from, it goes from a very undesirable location to a location that you can utilize because you are, you are in defile, right? You are, you are on this low ground, you are masked from the observation, and you can push, uh, push across it. Uh, but of course, all of that would depend on on Ukrainian forces keeping Russia off that high ground. But I have a hunch that's exactly the kind of maneuver that would happen in the dark in conjunction with Ukrainian attacks on the high ground. So uh, Ukraine will always, always be conducting as much fire and maneuver and fire and movement as it can at night. Uh, Chuck, I just want to welcome Latin uh, up. Uh, I, I think we're probably going to be talking air just a little bit here. Latin, go ahead. Hey, bud. Yeah, yeah it does. And I did plot strikes on uh, Staromayorsky. Uh, you know what's funny? This is either great minds thinking or alike. I uh, I looked at that and I plotted it as an airstrike uh, because the Russians have been conducting airstrikes there. Uh, but I went back to the general staff reporting and it said artillery strike. And you know what? Let let let's unpack that because I think you might be right. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I saw some of your earlier posts that I absolutely uh, agreed with. It, I, you know, they haven't lost two KA-52s in one day for a while. And uh, you pointed out, I believe, I absolutely agree. It's more of an occasion for opportunity for Ukrainian air defense because they are sort sorting, uh, you know, more more KK-52 sorties indicate uh, more opportunities to shoot them down. And what's interesting, I, I also concur with you doing the explosionology on that hit, it, uh, it, you know, I don't think that was, uh, you know, I don't think that was artillery, but the other thing that is interesting is the, the sort of breakthroughs that those, I don't have my map up yet, but those breakthroughs were, uh, uh, precipitated by, uh, Ukrainian JDAM strike on, uh, a Russian command and control node in Euros that decapitated local command and uh, Ukrainians were, were there to follow up on it, which is showing me the real sort of more elegant uh, applications of close air support. So, uh, and, and you know what, I, if you go into how challenging it is for Ukraine to, to put a JDAM as opposed to a JDAM ER, you know, how challenging it is for them to get in and actually get that particular type of precision guided munition on target because Ukraine does not have air parity uh, in these engagements, do they? Yeah, I think, it would, you know, the, uh, you, you more probably recognize this. The, the building that they hit looked to me like uh, it was an agricultural building but not a barn. It looked like a place where you'd fix tractors. Uh, was that the one? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's yeah, man. I'm probably going to be asking you, <laughs> you're the, you're the aviation guy. Wow. That's great. <clears throat> yeah. That's, uh, you know what? I linked that to a BBC article. Uh, and that, that was w what I got out of it as well. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, I'd like to, I'd like to express my bitterness, uh, a little bit. The United States has finally deigned, uh, to get out of the way of, uh, Belgium and Denmark, uh, who are, who are, who have platforms they're willing to put in. Uh, I believe it was, uh, national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Uh, who made the statement, uh, President Biden, I believe, was in Japan. I may be wrong about this, but uh, Jake Sullivan is generally the guy. Uh, and uh, that, uh, let me let me check my source as I'm sitting here. Uh, of course, my microphone will work perfectly while I'm not, uh, not talking here. Now I cannot find the uh, article. I have to go back to my own stupid timeline and find it here. Let's see. Okay. And have you seen this too, Latin? Or okay. Here's here's what yeah here's what BBC said. Uh, this is this is quoting. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said President Joe Biden informs his G7 counterparts 
of the decision at the Block Summit in Japan on Friday. And here's where you and I will wince, Latin. U.S. troops will also train Kiev's pilots to use the jets, Mr. Sullivan said. And they won't get too far if U.S. troops are training them, but I think they will get far if the United States Air Force is training them. So that's, uh, I don't have any information that uh, doesn't go beyond this BBC. But you know what? The BBC is generally a pretty good source. Yeah. So, uh, Chuck, uh, I'm just going to break in here. Can you hear me? I can. I can indeed. Okay. So a quick uh, public service announcement, and I want you to repeat it because I think you are one of the only people uh, on the space that uh, listeners can hear tonight, Chuck. I'm not sure anyone, uh, but in we're going to try to fix this audio glitch. It's a Twitter-wide glitch, and we're going to do it by... Uh, by rebooting uh, Maria Report. So I just want you to, to announce, Chuck, I'm going to say on in, it. in 30 seconds, we're going to reboot. We'll be back in uh, 30 seconds, and we'll still be in Orkiv. And everyone needs to retweet, get everyone back. We're going to... Okay, folks, be sure to get on that retweet. I'm putting one up right now. And we will see you on the other side of this tunnel. <laughs> and we'll be right back. Let's, let's see if that mic works. Let's see. I think it does. I, whenever we have a crash, Prince, you are, the, you are the voice that calls us all back together. Folks, if you can hear us, just re, retweet. Tell everybody we're back in business. Good. It sounds like we are back in business because uh, I have seen some really funky bugs. Um, <laughs> with uh, Twitter here. That one was that one was weird. The it, the mic would turn off when you were talking and turn on when you were taking a drink of water. Chuck, <laughs> believe it or not, I've seen worse actually out of Twitter. I have seen worse. I have seen it where uh we had me and uh, I could not unmute my mic and we had one speaker up and uh that was it. And so fortunately, it was a speaker that we knew very well, and he was able to uh, share information while bugs just magically cleared on Twitter spaces. I have seen some very interesting bugs. Um, good evening, Alan. It, Sorry, go ahead, Chuck. No, no, I just just was saying, you know, we're, we're using this tool in a way that Elon never thought anyone would, right? A 24-hour international news broadcast across all time zones seven days a week uh nobody thought you know this was going to be used this this way and 20 50 40 000 people a day getting information from this space no one ever thought that was going to go so you're all part of history alan you're back buddy Good yeah to see I'm, I'm back you know what this fixed the problem uh, the team down at Mission Control uh, rebooted, took care of us. Uh, we swung around the dark side of the moon. Uh, and uh, Houston, <laughs> we are on our way home. <laughs> it, it was our highly paid technicians, folks. Those, those guys cashing that big Maria report paycheck. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Unlike me, I'm just a bug. <laughs> on the windshield of life. 
<laughs> so me too. That you know, it's it's the only Western song I I really want to uh, compose. <laughs> just the bug on the windshield of life. But uh, just I'm gonna, another. Well, there's there's also uh, drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. That was one of my all time favorites. Oh, that is I one do of my love favorites. That. I used to I used to play that every Friday morning as loud as I could on my computer speakers when I would get into work. I think I like Plastic Jesus also That's a on good the dashboard one. of my car. That yep. is a good one, too. Okay. Now, folks, we're going to get uh, serious again. Uh, sometimes this happens after a crash and a reboot. Everything seems to be working. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to go back uh, to Latin, Chuck, so you and Latin can carry on. I'll get a new title up. Uh, retweet this space, get the maps back up in the nest, and we'll be good to go. Latin, I'm glad you're back. I think we were F-16ing uh, before the crash. <laughs> yeah, we were just to, just to kind of wrap that up, Chuck. I, because, again, this, you know, the, speaking of goalposts, the, uh, they, they seem to move every day on this file. So, fine. We, we continue on the space to examine that and, and, and keep an eye on it and see where it goes. Um, I'm going to take today's news as, at the very least, neutral. Um, and in the big picture, as we were saying yesterday, confirmation that they are coming, and that's good. Um, but I wanted to ask you specifically, because, you know, you, you have your sources, and you also have a lot of experience and a gut feeling. And what is your gut feeling? Is it, would you agree with the assessment that there is a chance they may come earlier than next summer? Wow. You know, I, I don't think so. Um, and I'm happy to, you know, to, to share your lights on this, but, you know, to me, uh, one year, it just isn't a whole lot of time, uh, you know, to get a pilot into a completely new aircraft and then importantly working him or her up in the platform. It, it, it's one thing to be current in an aircraft, and it is quite another thing to, uh, to be combat ready. Uh, I, I hate to be pessimistic, but, you know, that's what I'm thinking. Latin, what, what, what do you think? No, I agree. I said yesterday that all, although, you know, obviously politics are playing in this at different, in different countries at different levels, I do see that it's primarily operational. Um, this is not 1940 where a whole bunch of countries threw literally threw a bunch of aircraft at Finland and said, here, fight the Russians. It's just a different technological era. So, yeah, I agree that um, the, the, the opportunity was lost a year ago to, to really move forward with this. So we are where we are. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I'm watching, closely what, I'm watching closely what they're going to be able to do with what they have. That said, every time I see a post from someone like um, MiG-29 pilot uh, Juice, you know, these, these guys are going out there and risking their life every day in equipment that is uh, it's not junk, but it's it's inferior to what they could be flying. And uh, that's on us. It, it It is totally on us. And, you know, that's why I said I wanted to express my bitterness, because, look, this is a decision that could have and should have been made 18 months ago. Uh, but the other thing and folks, I, you know, look. I admit I'm in the tank for Ukraine, right? I mean, I am definitely, you know, I'm picked, I've picked a side in this, but I, I, I just, 
I want to be Debbie Downer here for a minute. Uh, I also blame my government for this. But just delivering F-16s into the introducing them into the into the battle here, I don't expect that to move the needle very much either, because it, there is a complex environment in which these aircraft have to operate, and that environment, unfortunately, is still and will be in a year. It still remains extraordinarily challenging uh, for Ukrainian pilots, right? Uh, they have to perform extraordinarily uh, extraordinary feats of airmanship just to launch an aviation strike mission, right? It, it takes a lot for them to come in flying a high-performance jet aircraft at about 100 feet just to get in uh, to their weapons envelope. So, I mean, right, Latin, I, I'm with you. This, you know, I'm a bit disgusted, but at least they finally have done it. And I, I just wonder, you know, what what took them so long? And in the meantime, we need we need more and better air defense because we need to, if we can't if we can't change the, uh, uh, you know, we can't get to air parity, uh, we can't even probably get to localized air dominance. But we can do something also about the air defense posture, and that's just an equipment problem. Uh, listen, you're the aviation guy. I want you to hold forth on this and and set us all right if I'm if I'm wrong here. No, I agree with everything you just said. There's some hands up, so I'll make this quick. I just want to kind of finish my thoughts on this, which two two points to make. One can't be made enough. I know I said it yesterday. If I sound like a broken record, I don't care. It's an important point to keep in mind for all supporters of Ukraine. Um, and you kind of touched on it just now. This is so about so much more than just F-16s or Gripens or anything else. This is, and I heard a, a quote today from a news conference a while back by uh, General Milley, where he said exactly this. This is about building a modern air force. That's going to take time. That's not an excuse. It's not political. They need to have, and especially in the absence of NATO, full NATO membership, they need to be like Israel. They need to have full capability to conduct combined air operations, which is, of course, much more than just fighter aircraft. It's, it's a whole bunch of other assets. That takes time. They don't even do aerial refueling yet. Eventually, they're going to have to do all that. So for everybody who supports Ukraine and wants them to be able to really long-term defend themselves against Russian aggression. That's what it's going to take. And so very important to keep an eye on that. The other thing, Chuck, I'll say on a positive note, okay, so we know probably they'll be getting them in about a year, maybe a little less than a year. Um, this is what, what makes, what, what, um, what I'm going to hold on to. When the Israelis transitioned to F-16s around 1980, they were one of the first, probably the first export customer. Uh, they have a very good training program, very experienced pilots. They went through the whole transition. They had barely gotten their first F-16s on the ground. They were brand new. They would have had new plane smell. And they used them in that long-range strike against the Iraqi um, uh, nuclear reactor. That took balls. And that took a lot of skill. And I think the Ukrainians are going to be able to do something similar. And, you know, that's funny, too, because I was just looking at that uh, today. I, I watched a little video on on Operation Opera, which was that strike that we're that we're talking about, and you know, there's, there's another thing to keep in mind here, folks. With the F-16, uh, the joke when you have an F-16 
uh, flying close air support for you. It's I came, I saw, I bingoed, uh, meaning that uh, you just get them on scene and they're running out of they're running out of fuel, and you can put great big auxiliary fuel tanks on them. Uh, and some more advanced F-16s have conf uh, conformal fuel tanks, but uh, you're trading gas for gunpowder, right? And the more uh, the more aviation fuel you have aboard, a lot of times the less ordnance you can carry. So it it isn't a big solution. Uh, this is a tool we should have given them a long time ago, and uh, like I said, it's going to take uh, I think a little bit longer than a year to work these pilots up. Yep, agreed. So Chuck, uh, I know we'll go, uh, Ray, we've got Raver and then we've got uh, George back. Raver, wanna go ahead? I appreciate it. So I think another factor that needs to be considered here, especially in light of the way that the uh, Leopards underwhelmed on their combat introduction, is there's probably a lot of Western politicians that are less worried about an F-16 conducting a strike than they are about the worried about an F-16 not coming back from the strike. So there's probably a lot of political hesitation, and that's, I think, one area where just a few F-16s actually could make a difference. And so building up the capability where we can be uh, or have have a reasonable uh, expectation that they're going to come back, I think is an important part of this. Yeah, I, I was literally thinking of that as well. You know, the first F-16 that gets downed uh, there will be much hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth. But, but folks, this is combat, right? Uh, Bradleys have been lost. Leopards have been lost. Airplanes get shot down. Uh, it's a war. And you're bringing it to the enemy, and you can be sure the enemy is not just going to sit there and take it. So, uh, And wars always get lost by politicians, about, you know, let's say 40% of the times your generals will lose the war for you. But when you get politicians involved, you lose 100% of the wars, at least in my experience, Raver. What do you think? I don't necessarily disagree with you um, because they, they will, there will be a lot of hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth. And I wonder if we're a victim of our own success that the West has become so used to small casualty wars where we do all the punching and take none, of, take none of it back, that now that there's a chance that actual Western aircraft could be downed, there's just a fear. You know, like, does our political class have a glass jaw? Well, that's a great way to put it, and I think they do. You know, I think they do. I, what, I, you know, there's, there's all these things, folks, that... The, the West will make these incremental announcements about uh, sending weapons to Ukraine, aircraft, etc. And it's, it's almost as though that's Washington's weapon, right? Well, Russia, you did this, and as a consequence, we're sending in, you know, fill in the blank, more HIMARS, F-16s. Uh, you know, so F-16s, that's a great plan. But maybe Ukraine might actually be able to use, uh, you know, some, some aerial reconnaissance. Maybe, maybe they might, you know, I don't think they're ready yet to man and deploy and utilize an AWACS, but 
that's what it takes to win an air war, right? There's so many other pieces to fighting an air battle and uh, to coordinating and uh, prosecuting, uh, you know, airstrikes on a 650-mile-long battlefield. And Ukraine is short of, of what any American combatant would be used to, right? I mean, you got an AWACS up there. You got, uh, you got combat controllers on the ground. You've got all these Air Force assets to help you, you know, get that close air where you need it. And Ukraine is, uh, they are making do. They're making do without. And that's our fault. Yep, I, I totally agree with that sentiment, Chuck. You know, I think we're putting off long-term decisions and today's long-term decisions become uh, tomorrow's short-term decisions, unfortunately. And hopefully we we can at least make a decision and we can stick to it and support them over time. And, and I also agree with you in terms of, you know, politicians. I think the only politician that I'm aware of that um, really maybe helped measurably um, was elected president of the United States and Harry Truman and what he did during World War II to, to root out corruption. But that, really, that's kind of the exception to prove the rule, right? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, <laughs> the greatest wartime president we've ever had was Abraham Lincoln, with Franklin Roosevelt perhaps, uh, you know, deserving a place on the podium. But uh, what Lincoln did was educate himself on the concepts of war, by reading the classics. And uh, then he began a search uh, for a general who could win the war. But what Lincoln always did is he made sure that, you know, the equipment taps were open and, uh, and his generals and his, his armies had what they needed to win the war. And by no measure has, has the West provided adequate tools to Ukraine. I mean, no one can say that that has happened. And there's so much that they need. And let's get off slightly uh, F-16s for just a moment. Look, Ukrainian cities are under attack weekly, almost nightly in some cases. And it is Russia deliberately targeting Ukrainian population centers. And they do this because, A, they're punks and they're war criminals. But B, and really this should be A, by striking Ukrainian civilians, they force Ukraine to deploy air defense assets away from the zero line and way in their rear to, to protect their civilians. And uh, Ukraine needs more air defense. So... The cities can be safe and so that they can establish air defense parity or at least localized air defense dominance on these zones of uh, where the battles are, are, are happening. And Germany just delivered another two Iris-T uh, air defense systems to Ukraine. Uh, this is three and four out of four that they have promised I don't know where all the Iris-T batteries are, but I do know this. There was one operating in the Kiev airspace, and where it, as of four weeks ago, five weeks ago, it had a 100% interception rate. Every missile that it fired took out an incoming Russian threat. So let's give them more, you know. Let's, 
let's let's give them force adequate to protect their cities, to protect their critical infrastructure, and put this stuff closer and closer and on the zero line so that uh, in lieu of air superiority, which American forces you know, expect and pretty much require in order to operate, let, let's, let's let Ukraine in, enjoy what Americans consider as a precondition for battle, right? You don't have to look to the sky and worry about getting bombed or strafed or uh, hit with a cruise missile. And every day, Russia is sorting at least 10 times the number of, of aviation strike missions that Ukraine can put on the map. It, it never comes close, right? So uh, they, they need the uh, lost your audio there for a moment, Chuck. Uh, let's go to uh, Furious, to Stephen, to Fletch, uh, and then we'll move on from Orkiv. Although we can go back to Orkiv, it's the last tweet in the nest. The next to last tweet uh, is uh, Velika Novosilka, and that's where we'll be going next. Uh, Furious, go ahead. Uh, Furious, tell me you can unmute your mic. Uh, anyone, let me know if you can hear me. I can't hear you at all, Alan. You're you're as silent as a ghost. Can hear you for sure. I I got you, Alan, but uh, I don't have furious. Yeah, can you uh, hear me, Alan? Furious, your audio. Yep, I can hear you. Yeah, I cannot. I cannot hear furious, Michael. Go take take it away, Michael. No problem. Furious, you're unmuted now. Now I see you uh, unmuted now. Go ahead. Okay. All right, Furious, I don't believe uh, don't believe we can we can hear right now. We can come right back to you, um, Alan. I'm going to go ahead and we'll swing it back over to Fletch next in the order. Fletch, go ahead. Yeah, George, thanks. you should recycle. Yeah, thanks. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Chuck mentioned Abraham Lincoln. You know. We were talking about propaganda earlier on. I don't know if this is anything propaganda, but I was watching a film with Lincoln where he was um, a vampire killer. You know, it's just weird, isn't it, all this propaganda? Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> F-16s, yeah, when they come, they come. That, that's the reality of it. Uh, what we've got to deal with is now, um, because as, as you see on your maps, Chuck, there's a lot of movement and there's a lot of, um, shall we say, forward movement by Ukraine. Now, a couple of things I've noticed, uh, and I'm only keen on what's going to achieve the counteroffensive. Everything else is just talk. You know, what can change the counteroffensive and its movement? Now, today, um, or the last 24 hours, uh, Britain has announced another 115 million package of air defence. Um, now, now, my understanding is that's going to be medium-range stuff. I'm hopeful that is the case anyway. Uh, and that will solve some of the problems. Because when Ukraine does go for a big push, it's going to need coverage. Now, we heard Thomas Tyner previously mention that they might, might even bring an Irish T, a Nathans, or even a Patriot uh, to cover the brigades when they're forward movement. Um, and, and I suspect that's what the general staff will do. They're not going to risk the most important 
uh, break through of this wall without having air coverage. Um, I know you're talking about the explosions in Stara Malinsky. Um, yeah, there was a couple of J dams there. There was a couple up in Solidar. You normally find that if it's two hits, it's normally a Ukrainian J dam usage. Um, and they are coming and they're, they're normally upping it um, because they've taken out a reasonable amount of air defence. There are certain gaps in this southern front where they can come through and go a little bit higher. So that gives an indication of J dams. Now, we haven't seen a lot of usage on them. Just remember, they've got hundreds in stock. Yeah, so they're going to be used for when the big push comes to hammer the trenches. So that's why I'm thinking this air defence from the Brits is another supporting factor from a possible further movement when they have the have the big breakthrough. Um, you've seen uh, the axis on the southern front, Chuck, which you've highlighted, and, and I agree entirely with those. I mean, the four areas which are uh, very keen in my eyes um, are, are the uh, Robotny, the Verbove, the Staromalinka area. Now, you may be aware, they took Eurazine, Eurazine or whatever it's called, you know, um, a few days ago. Well, it was a little bit longer than that. Um, so there is a bit of misunderstood reporting on that, whether there were still Russian troops in the in the southern part of it. Um, but they are now moving on to the um, that, that that funny name one before Stara Malinka. Um, now the key areas in Stara Malinka is the left left and right flanks, um, and their opus of motors of is to achieve the flanking moves whereby they, they normally um, operate from east and west and south and north uh, and allow, uh, allow the Russians to retreat, but they get hammered when they retreat from the south. Um, and also um, one area which hasn't been had much press lately is Vuladar. Now, we've got the, the 92nd Mech in Vuladar, and we've all heard of the 97 Mech before. That's a bloody good piece of um, brigade there. Um, and if that had support in coming for it, then we are looking at possibly another axis there. That's that's not even been, been tried. We've only had skirmishes on that area. So all in all, along the southern front, as you as you highlight in your maps, Chuck, there's movement everywhere. There's, there's heavy movement in Verbove. Um, and each one of these will be a flank, which, which wherever one, they're going to make the, the final push. And you covered it, Chuck, in Kherson. If they can do harassing uh, cross, um, cross the water raids all along that line, that's going to really stretch the Russians even further. So the key areas, and another key area, and I know you noticed this, Chuck, is um, it was mentioned tonight, there was asked a question about the N26 rockets, um, and they said there's no decision being made yet. It hasn't been made. Well, that means they're thinking about it. Um, you know, you read in between the lines of what they've always said when they say these things. It's not like the Biden saying a no. It's we have, you know, it's it's not been addressed at this present time. Um, and also with the F-16s, they can have the F-16s as soon as they pass the training. So uh, the the reality, what we need now, and if we get the small diameter bombs, Chuck, they, they they should be here now. You know, they may already even be with the Ukrainians, we don't know, because we've had that six-month timescale from when Rayathon said that they should be ready within the six-month period. We're now in near enough in the autumn. So if they have all these three things, 
they have enough defence for coverage, you know, in the, especially in the, in the medium ranges. If they do get those M26 where they can hammer the trenches and the second, definitely the second lines, uh, and we have the small diameter bombs, then, then what they're saying, and they're, they're going to be game changers and will allow the Ukraine, and it has been said, Chuck, by Dan Rice, to actually win this particular counteroffensive and make the breakthroughs they need. So, I mean, do you agree with that summary? 100%. I, I agree with that. Uh, you know, the small diameter bomb folks, uh, we, we've talked about this before, but a, as they as they come into come into use, uh, think of the JDAM. Uh, regular JDAM is a great big 2,000-pound bomb. Uh, dumb bomb JDAMs are are actually kits that are bolted on. The weapons envelope for a JDAM is, uh, it, in very simplistic terms, it is a cone going off the front of the airplane. Uh, you let this JDAM go. Uh, the regular JDAM doesn't have wings. It has these sort of they're called strakes. They're but they're they're just kind of straps that stick out from the side of the bomb and the tailplanes, the fins of the bomb are maneuverable. Uh, the small diameter bomb is roughly equivalent uh, to the JDAM ER. It's a 250 pound bomb. Uh, it has a kit you bolt on it, but these are extendable wings. Uh, the small diameter bomb uh, is, uh, is roughly uh, the JDAM ER. But instead of dropping it from an aircraft, it is fired out of uh, uh, HIMARS. Uh, it has a rocket on it. It goes up. It extends these wings. But here's where the JDAM ER really starts to shine. Uh, the JDAM has to be dropped, like I said, in a cone off the front of the aircraft. The JDAM ER, uh, or the small diameter bomb, is launched up. It extends its wings and then it can fly around. It can fly 360 degrees around its launch point. It can fly towards an enemy hilltop, fly over it, and do a 180-degree turn and hit the reverse slope. So you, you can see how, uh, you know, how important having weapons like that will be, and especially to support, uh, you know, the air quotes offensive because it is, you know, it's combined arms maneuver warfare and combined arms means of course, air support as part of one of the supporting arms. Uh, another reason why I, you know, I, I always like to tell people, look, the war is not going to be over by Christmas, right? Take that FC 16 comment. And uh, you're looking at a year to 18 months to get those aircraft online. Uh, these are the weapons that are necessary to set the preconditions uh, to prepare the battlefield for large-scale maneuver warfare conducted by the Ukrainian forces. Uh, if you ever get down by thinking the war is going on for a couple more years, I I'd like you to remember this. Uh, this is my assessment. I stay it every night. The Russian army, the way it is now, cannot win this war. They can't. They might stay in it, but they can't win it. The other thing to remember is every day that Russian sword, it gets duller and rustier. 
they, they don't get any better. Their combat efficiency diminishes every day. Every day they lose 1% of their artillery. Now they have tens of thousands of artillery tubes in reserve, but the older these systems are and they don't have unlimited numbers of self-propelled guns. They've got lots of old stuff. But as you dig deeper into that old stuff, uh, you're going to get overfaced and overmatched by a better equipped adversary, which, which will be Ukraine. Uh, it, it makes me uh, angry sometimes that our nation has dragged its feet. Uh, you know, Ukraine is not asking for the 82nd Airborne. They're not asking for the United States Marine Corps. They're not asking for U.S. combat advisors. They're not asking for any of that stuff. They just want the tools, right? They want the tools to fight an invader who has been in their country since 2014. Raping, murdering, stealing, committing atrocities, filling mass graves up with civilians. Uh, this is the brotherly embrace of a fellow Slavic people who came to liberate the Ukrainians from their Nazi overlords, right? And steal a couple of toilets and washing machines. They have to be defeated, right? There is no negotiation, folks. There is no diplomacy that's going to end this war. The Russian army has got to be destroyed. Got to make sure that Putin never tries this again or whoever Putin Jr. is and he is living right now, like the Antichrist. The guy who succeeds Putin is already alive. He's born. He's in the system. We don't know when he's going to step up, but he is not going to be the guy who turns Russia around and puts it on the path of righteousness. It's not going to happen. Russia is an expansive imperialist power who will be wounded at the conclusion of the Ukrainian war. Their means of waging ground war has got to be destroyed. And that's going to take some time. It's going to take a couple of more years. But we're all here. I'd rather know it's going to be a long fight than expect any great, uh, uh, you know, gift from above to end this war uh, more quickly. But things aren't getting better for the Russians. They're getting worse. Yeah, I'd rather know it's going to be a long fight, too, Chuck, and a long fight yeah. that the United States uh, and every NATO nation uh, signs up for, not by saying uh, we're in it for as long as it takes, but by saying that we are with Ukraine through final victory. We're talking about the same final victory, the same kind of final victory that we needed uh, over Nazi Germany. Uh, and Tojo's Japan, and we won those unconditional surrenders. Now, unconditional surrender may be going a step too far, but you know what? I don't think it is. Alan, I'll just add to what Chuck just said, just to support that fact. Um, now, the Ukrainians themselves have openly admitted there is going to be other offensives. So that gives an indication of what Chuck's saying. Uh, but Chuck has all, always put the proviso on unless something significantly alters the whole battlefield or political or economic situation. Yeah. So in, in theory, 
they could break through to the sea as of wipe out the southern force and that could cause a collapse in the political structure so you know chuck is open-minded to it ending earlier but if it plays out how it's been playing out it will go on for longer well i i wonder chuck you know both ben hodges and mick ryan uh, this has been a powerhouse week of military analysts with you uh for the third time tonight uh mick ryan ben hodges they both spoke uh, about the Ukrainian campaigns that will be needed in 2024 and 2025. And therefore, they spoke about the long-term strategy that not only Ukraine needs, but the United States needs. We can take steps towards that long-term strategy right away. Do you see it uh, being formulated in Washington or not? Wow, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I like to think uh, that there is that there is a plan, right? But again, you you hear things coming out of Washington, and you don't know exactly what they mean, and they could mean good things. For example, if someone said, uh, uh, "Well, for example." Everything that's on the battlefield now in Ukraine, let's just take HIMARS, for example. There was a time when the United States says, uh, we're not going to provide HIMARS. Then they said, it is not foreseeable that the United States will provide HIMARS. Then they said, the United States is not considering HIMARS. Then they said, well, the United States might consider in some circumstances that HIMARS will be sent to the battlefield. Then they were there. I personally like, and to our Norwegian listening guests, I mean this with all of my heart, I like the way Norway does business. Oh, by the way, we sent 270,000 AT4s to Ukraine three months ago. I like Norway. Uh, There is a lot of stuff. You know what? For a while in my life, uh, I I was uh, a writer in Hollywood, right? It's a power town, and you look around and you learn the little mannerisms of people in power. And then for a long portion of my life, I was uh, an intelligence analyst and a beltway bandit. And you looked around, and the trappings of power in Washington were different, but they were the exact posturing, hey, look at me, uh, power politics and dynamics as they are in Los Angeles, just with worse clothes. And to get those people off the dime and to get them focused, and by this I mean our legislatures, uh, our legislators, folks, these guys, uh, there are some good people in Congress. Uh, There really are. Davy Crockett was one of them. There's been some others since then, but I'm trying to think of them. Uh, Most of what they do is make sure they get themselves reelected. Right. That's what they do. That is job one every day. That's the job. We, as as a people who elect them and send them to Congress, I don't think most Americans are aware of just how much power we actually have over the men and women in Congress. We need to use our power and to tell them we need you to get off the dime and support Ukraine. And folks, it's so easy. And I say this a lot. 
All you got to do at the end of the show tonight is, is call Washington. Just dial your congressman's number. I promise you no one's going to answer the phone. You're going to get to leave a voicemail. But I do know this. Your voicemail, someone's going to listen to it tomorrow, and they're going to note it down in the call log. And if there are 50 calls tonight, you'll get their, you'll get their attention. And if you're feeling, you know, if you're feeling expressive, write them a letter. You know, be polite, be firm, uh, remind them you're a constituent, uh, you vote, and uh, you'd like to make sure that, uh, you know what, you could even phrase it this way. You'd like to make sure that this war in Ukraine does not drag on and kill. We're not going to sit there and watch Ukrainian civilians killed by Russia Give Ukraine what it needs to defend its cities. Give Ukraine what it needs to end this war of aggression. And uh, let's all do it. And if you are a congressman or a staffer listening tonight, hey, you know, the ball's in your court. Let, let's do it. Let's do it. That is so true, Chuck. And if you've already done it, then uh, do it again, I'd say. It, it, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So with that said, Chuck, I'd like to get over uh, one of my, my fellow Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and Furious. Um, I know he's been very patient. So uh, Furious, please go ahead. Hopefully we got your, uh, got your communication uh, all squared away there. You can talk to us. I'm going to make this quick. So on the F-16s, it depends on what Ukraine sends. If they send their best pilots, they can, they can master the aircraft in about three to four months. To the point where they'll be able to launch a strike against the Baltics, against the Black Sea Fleet. That's not the important thing. The important thing is it's going to take them another three to five months to master what they need to do, and that's wild weasel. In other words, training. You as a pair, got it. As a pair, taking out surface-to-air missiles. Once they start doing that, then the whole ground war starts opening up. Because then you can get your close, your your air, your uh, helicopters, your close air air support, and you don't have to worry about uh, Russian uh, R- Russian fighters. Because what's going to happen is uh, I'm talking about the Russian air force. Because what's going to happen is you get the wild weasel, you take out those surface to air uh, positions. Now you can push your your air force forward. Because you don't have to worry about surface-to-air missiles. Now, depends on what F-16s they get and which missiles. Now you can start actually taking out Russian uh, fixed-wing aircraft. To be honest with you, I honestly think, and this is going to be a little bit of a shock to some people, but I actually think that Ukraine's going to have operational grippings before they have F-16s. Something tells me... Sweden just wants to stick it to everybody up to yin yang, and that's the way to do it. And you know, another aircraft that that isn't on the table but really should be. There is an F-18 variant called a Growler. And folks, it is a high performance fighter aircraft adapted to fight as an electronic warfare platform. And uh it can blind and uh fake out uh, radar systems, that, that's its job. Uh, 
I think a couple of growlers might be in some circumstances worth uh, an equal weight in F-16s. What, what do you think, Fury? Well, that's true. The only, the only thing is, is that there's not that many available. Now the F-16s, you can put, uh, you could put electronic uh, like ECM type of uh, pods on it. The problem is if Ukraine sends their junior pilots, then yeah, you're looking at about a year. You're looking about six months to eight, to nine months minimum you know the wild weasel training is what's going to so you learn how to fly the aircraft but then you need to have a co-pilot right because it's a tandem uh it's two pilots two planes that have to fly this mission and it's usually four pilots all together two being uh you know the the rabbit and two being the hunters so what they use is they use a harm missile now to take out once you send the rabbit forward, right? The uh, surface-to-air missile system turns on its radar. Well, now once it turns on its radar, the other, the the plane that's going to launch the harm missile detects where it is, launches the harm, and the whole uh, there goes the radar thing. The other thing that that would do is remember, we've heard stories that Russia has to had had has had to pull trainers trainers from their schools to man these radar stations so they don't have the personnel right and that's what another reason why they're firing the s300s in a a surface-to-surface mode not because they want to they can't use them as 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 a surface-to-air as surface-to-air mode because there's nobody to man the radars that i guarantee you is one of the problems they're having so the more radar systems you take out, you don't have to take out the launchers. You just have to take out the radars because then the launchers are blind. And the radars are the most important thing because the radars are the most important piece and it's the hardest thing to train. And the other thing is the Russians have never tr- had to do actual training against a wild weasel formation. They have zero actual experience on it they can simulate it with their aircraft but their aircraft don't have the ecm pods that uh we're talking about and they definitely don't have the hard missile so even if they do have the crews it's very very difficult to counter that type of formation the iraqis found out the hard way we decimated their surface to air missiles using uh that tactic and those were with older F-16s with actually uh, older type of uh, ECM pods, not the pods that have come out in the last 20 years. Uh, they're night and day with what we were using uh, against the, the Iraqi surface-to-air missile batteries uh, back in the 1990 and 91. Yeah, and you you named the uh, the target of the week, and that will be a coordinated air and naval attack on the Russian naval operational base at Sevastopol. And that is definitely going to happen, folks. And uh, it is going to, uh, it's going to be Russia's Pearl Harbor. Uh, Even though Sevastopol is and it will remain at a very high uh, operational and defensive posture, they will, but they're going to get it there. It's going to happen. And 
one of the one of the preconditions of that battle is going to be uh, Ukraine's ability uh, to uh, you know deploy, insert, and activate aircraft at that uh, you know at that location. A lot of things are going to have to come together for that mission uh, to happen, but Russia is going to get to taste what it's like to have so many incoming aerial threats that they can't deal with them. And that glorious day is coming. Chuck, you know, I want to remind people, remember why the Moskva was very important? Not because of the name. It was one of the few uh, surface vessels that was designed for, uh, you know, for air defense. And and, and command and control, George. Yes, they have very, very few AAW air uh, uh, vessels left in, in the Black Sea. I think there's only two or three left, right? And they, they obviously they don't they, they don't fire the, 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 the missiles that the Moskva had that don't have the range. So if the harpoon has an 80 uh, you know 80 what is it 80 mile range and you can get the aircraft up, you know, the aircraft doesn't get has, doesn't have to get up high in the air. It just has to skim over the water and launch that harpoon now uh, 80 kilometers, 90 kilometers out, outside the air defense envelope of those ships. And, uh, you know, good night, Gracie. Uh, good night, Gracie. Uh, George Burns, that was a great show. Uh, <laughs> We're old, guys. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing like black and white TV. That was the golden age. Uh, uh, George is, is right. Uh, and uh, a, a little later tonight, Chuck, I think we will look at the sea baby uh, unmanned uh, naval drones that were launched tonight. Uh, we have a lot of hands. We still have maps. Uh, this is going to probably be... Uh, a long march to the end uh, of maps. So I think we have uh, Stephen, Hopsy, Bruce, and Alex. Stephen, go ahead. Appreciated. Thank you. Um, this is really a follow-up on the comments uh, earlier on about um, delivery of F-16s uh, and uh, the long war and the glass jaw. And the, but the, I want to say something in advance of all that. And it's really something I would like this space to take note of. Um, a great number of people in, uh, entirely reasonably, because it is the way in which these things have been referred to in the past, continually talk about the West. I would like that to end personally um, because it is not the West against Russia. You have to understand that when you are using language like that, you are actually feeding directly into Russian propaganda. And in fact, also CCP propaganda as it happens, but whatever. You are feeding directly into Russian propaganda. It is not the West. This war is a war of authoritarian, totalitarian, fascist control, which wants to spread its influence across the whole world versus open societies. 
perhaps I have um, uh, a different view on this because I was born in East Africa and uh, I'm half Iraqi. So uh, please, can we try to not always refer to the West because the, the West basically in the um, propaganda terms of Russia and the likes essentially is a cipher for America. It's really very unhelpful. Um, this is not about the West. Uh, let, let's remember that you know two of the nations in the five eyes are in the Pacific Ocean and that uh, there is Japan, there are, you know, there are many other nations involved here and many people who do not appreciate that um, epithet because, because every time we hear it, it uh, spikes a certain, um, you know, historical feature in the mind. It's not a good one. And worse than that, it literally feeds directly into the narrative uh, that is being pushed by those that are the enemies of the open society. This is totalitarians versus the world. Okay, thank you very much for my little rant. Okay, I'm off that hobby horse for a moment. So um, I just wanted to to add uh, something about yeah F sixteens and well it's not really specifically about the F sixteens, it's about this, uh, and this this feeds uh, or um, follows on from something that Chuck was saying, uh, talking about the glass jaw of the West and uh, and yes I use that because that was the context that was the phrase used. Um, that perhaps uh, the great powers of the open societies of this world have, have not, they have forgotten what it is like to be in a force-on-force -force conflict where they are taking casualties and where they have to improvise continuously uh, to survive. Uh, and if you read the histories of the Second World War, you will you know, realize how desperate the fight was constantly and how it was extreme innovation and nimbleness and willingness to do absolutely anything with any available weapon system um, that eventually won the fight. And I thirdly want to, therefore, draw your attention to this. The ZSU, the Arms Forces of Ukraine, have had to deal with something that has been rarely or never discussed on this channel and is rarely and never discussed anywhere else. And of course, we all want to supply them with you know, every possible weapon system that we can, fine. But the, so let's look at NATO, you know, typical NATO general staff member understands what they have in their inventory understands what their procurement you know, profile is going to be and makes plans with these rather satisfied um, <laughs> assumptions. The general staff of Ukraine has had to integrate umpteen different weapon systems. Sure, we give them, give them to them. That's fine. And that's great. It's wonderful. It should continue. 
the difficulty of integrating those systems into a, an actual strategic and battlefield plan is manifold, and they have done an unbelievable job of that. I think I'll end there. Thank you. Stephen, I'm very glad you brought up the, the West and, uh, you know, the, that meaning a cipher for the United States and a means by which uh, Russia and the CCP and other, other uh, bad actors can use that as, as a lightning rod. Uh, there was a lot of time in my own operational career that, uh, you know, the, the, the information space was, was exactly that, right? Uh, U.S. the United States was, uh, equated and by this, you know, by this clever, uh, informational effort on, be on behalf of the Soviet Union, whose capabilities the, the Russian Putin has definitely inherited those, that uh, the United States was an imperialist power, expansionist, on and on and on. That still remains hanging in the air. And despite the fact that in Ukraine, we are looking at a truly imperial war waged by an expansionist power who May desires once again... May I interject? Right. Oh, May please. Absolutely. Um, yes, one of the reasons that I find um, the narrative surrounding this war so absolutely frustrating, uh, I'm going to say this, look, I'm not left-wing oriented, not right-wing oriented. I, I, there are elements of, of society that I think should be socialized. There are, but I actually absolutely oppose socialism as a government. It's a different discussion. It doesn't matter. Um, but... Um, <sighs> But the acti acti active measures of the former Soviet Union, which I would say um, the current Russian administration is essentially the continuation thereof, uh, with barely a heartbeat in between, um, you know, were extremely effective at infiltrating academia um, and therefore influencing uh, generations of um, uh, journalists, um, historians, uh, philosophers, um, and other similar. Um, and that influence caused a kind of... Now, I will lay my cards on the table that I definitely do not support and have not supported everything that the United States and Britain and the, what we call the putative West has done. I am a defender of the open society and of democracy. And actually what used to be called the old Republic of the United States, fine, whatever, yeah. uh, of human freedom, basically. Um, but I have been furiously angry with a, a number of, uh, of things, and I did, even though Saddam Hussein was absolutely an enemy of mine. Uh, I was furiously angry with the way in which, and I would specifically say the politicians conducted uh, the two campaigns in Iraq. Uh, but in any case, I opposed both wars, even though their ultimate objectives of at least removing him, fine. But um, 
uh, but there have been, you know, we know about about, about you know, American crimes. I'm sorry, but I will say it. Uh, you know, I have visited Vietnam. I, uh, I I talk to veterans, and I've seen that country in detail. And you know, uh, uh, the, the, it was a it, there was a lot of bad things done. Let's just say it, that. But but that is not my point. The point is that everybody knows about that, and we have heard until we are sick to death of the Oliver Stones of this world who are constantly blaming America for everything and, uh, you know, but what they don't say is that Russia destabilized and destroyed the societies of Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, much of Central and South America, uh, Africa, at the same time, and nobody fucking talks about that, and it drives me crazy. So this is why I just, you know, I think we should be careful about talking about the West here. Thank you. Well put, sir. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, and it's important to get that get that perspective, because there there is there is one. You know, I, I'm one who often rails about uh, Russian military dysfunction, but there is one sphere of power at which they are absolute masters and that is gray zone operations and a great portion of that folks is extremely elegant information warfare Stephen referred to active measures and this was the term of art during the soviet times where they did exactly do that they co-opted, coerced, corrupted, enticed, paid journalists. They infiltrated uh, with an eye to control a lot of worthy uh, organizations, peace movements, uh, people, green energy. Uh, you know, uh, there was communist infiltration of these, of these organizations. And the information space it's, was influenced. Apologies, to, apologies to interrupt please, your eloquent that, speech. That's okay. But, it's but, a discussion. You certainly, certainly. But you refer to it in the past tense. It is absolutely ongoing. Oh no, I I I agree with you. It is absolutely ongoing. But the information space was influenced to such an extent that were you even to trip up as I just did and say that, that these organizations will were infiltrated, infiltrated by communists, you would immediately get, get nabbed with, you are fill-in-the-blank, a McCarthyist, a right-wing. Uh, and again, I don't touch politics on the show, folks. It's, it, isn't, it isn't my thing. But information warfare is one of my things. And Stephen is right. Academia, all, all of the... All of the intellectual and informational uh, points of uh, concentrations were were influenced, and they still are. Look, we've got people in the United States, a vocal minority, uh, saying things like, "What what do we need to be in Ukraine for? We have we have poverty in Appalachia." To which I'd say, as a Southerner, and what have you done about that? Look, folks, I'm a Mississippian. Look me in the face, Tucker. What what were you going to do about solving poverty 
where I live. What have you done for the last 50 years? So don't give me that crap. Seriously, don't. You know, and, and I, I absolutely agree, Stephen. I'm very glad you came up to frame this. This is a battle between authoritarian governments and, and the true definition of fascism, right? Which is a political class that has merged with an industrial class. Uh, I don't want to say capitalists, but the oligarchs that Putin has allowed to fear, uh, flourish, the ones he's appointed, the, the people who surround him, control the means of production, uh, the capital and the economy of Russia. That's fascism. That's I'm going fascism. to have to interject. I'm, I have to interject here. Sorry again. Uh, yes, I agree with you. Absolutely. Uh, to a large extent that you need to refine your definition. It is not just a political uh, class that has merged with an industrial class. That can happen in any um, open society. That absolutely can. Um, uh, it may not be great, but that's not what's going on here. Uh, it is a totalitarian, absolutist um, political class who follow the diktats of a dictator um, and uh, who subsume the, the thoughts, the, the means of expression, uh, every aspect of the freedom, even the freedom to think that you are free into their, uh, into their um, uh, miasma, into their um, all-controlling state, uh, and are militaristic, and are imperialistic. Thank you. Sorry. Apologies. Sorry. Apologies. I know I, this is something I am very particular about. And we're glad to have you. And let's go to a map place, Alan, yep. if you'd like. I'd like to go to a map place. Uh, the maps are now in disorder, uh, but the the next to last map in the nest is Velika Novosilka. Uh, and here's a place where Ukraine is staying engaged with... Am I the uh, only one not hearing, Alan? Oh. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I can hear him. <clears throat> we... Oh, okay. Oh, Your okay. targets. Up. Yeah. Damn. This has been a hell of a night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it has been. We we've got a lot of news and we can't get it out there. Exactly. Anyway, Alan, I can I can hear you. And folks, if you can hear Alan, give him a hand so we can uh, we can see who we're reaching. So next, the last tweet in the nest, Velika Novosilka, uh, as Russians retreat, uh, Ukraine is staying engaged with the retreating forces. And this strikes me as pretty important. Oh, Chuck, now we have lost your audio. Oh. No, just oh, try again. Oh, no. Okay. All we right. got I think I'm, I'm going gonna... to keep one eye on the, on the mic button here. Uh, the fighting in Robotny might be uh, more severe than it is right now south of Velika Nova Silka. But it's uh, it's pretty much a toss-up. Uh, similarities in these battlefields. Uh, again, we have a north-south highway that is supplying both sides. In this case, the TO518, uh, which heads south out of Velika Nova Silica. And as everybody knows by now, this follows the Mokriyali uh, River Valley, the Mokriyali 
uh, meanders uh, to the east and west of the highway. Uh, but in the battle zone we're talking about, it is mostly to the west. However, it crosses in a couple of key locations that figure in exactly uh, into the battle space. Uh, Ukraine has uh, consolidated control over Staromayorsky. Uh, it was hit today by a Russian airstrike. Uh, shelling and artillery uh, have targeted this place pretty much uh, during this entire battle. Again, it sits astride uh, the TO-518, which is uh, Ukraine's line of communication and supply into the battle space. Uh, Ukraine uh, has been reported for the last couple of days uh, as having liberated uh, Eurozane, which is a little satellite town on the other side of the, uh, of the uh, Mokriyali River. Uh, Ukraine has reiterated again that it's in control. I deconstruct that as meaning this, this place has gone back and forth. Uh, but this was the place we talked just a little earlier about with Latin, uh, the, the precipitating event for uh, the Ukraine, Ukrainian advancement uh, through and past Eurozane was a JDAM strike that targeted a specific building in the midsection of this little town, uh, decapitated local Russian control, and Ukraine was able to push down the TO518 towards a loop in the uh, Mokriyali River, uh, approaching within uh, 100 yards of, of the highway. Uh, contact continued there. Uh, there is a pocket of the Mokriyali River west of the TO518 in our specific battle area here. Uh, Russia has been pushed out of that. Uh, again, one of those Russian uh, slash military genius in the Kremlin battle ideas, uh, Russia kept feeding men into this dead-end river pocket. Uh, this is another one of those counterproductive, not one inch back sort of orders. Uh, those troops were uh, attrited, right? You went into that pocket, you didn't come out, but Russia kept sending people in. Uh, there is one bridge to the south of uh, Eurozane. Uh, that bridge I'm listing right now in, in a sort of, uh, I don't know who is controlling it. Uh, but interestingly, Ukrainian troops, and this is on the east side of the highway, they are in contact south of uh, Zavidny uh, Bazania. That is the next town down. So Ukraine presently is in contact uh, to the west of Zavadne, uh, and they are in contact to the east and to the south. So I think we're going to be looking at uh, Ukrainian advancement uh, it will probably take a couple of days to take uh, Zivotny. But each one of these battle spaces we've, we've named, uh, Staromayorsky, little tiny bridge there. Yurozane, little tiny bridge there. Uh, now 
the fighting is centered around, but not necessarily the objective of uh, the fighting. Uh, and this, this will probably come into Ukrainian possession tomorrow morning. Uh, not surprisingly, if you've been following, the next bridge is, uh, is co-located with the next town, which is uh, Staro Malinkvika. That is going to be a tough nut to crack. It's a bigger town uh, than any of the ones we've mentioned. It has been the center of, of Russian logistics uh, for the battle here along the TO-518. It's been in their possession a long time. Uh, all of their troops, reinforcements, ammunition, supply, fuel, everything has passed through here for a long time. And uh, Russia is going to make a big stand here. Uh, that is why I suspect that soon, uh, in the next couple of days, we're going to see activity uh, to the east. Um, again, this uh, wanted to report in this map on, uh, on activity uh, along the TO-518, so the inset is covering it. Tomorrow morning, I'll put a map up. Uh, without the inset, and I suspect we're going to see uh, activity uh, to the east of Velika Novoslika, and there is a highway there, the TO5, uh, TO509, going east and west, and I would expect to take some of the pressure uh, off the effort on the TO518. We'll see a Ukrainian probe demonstration or uh, maybe a big a big move uh, to the east of town. Uh, Chuck, where do you think that the main Ukrainian attack is going to occur? Uh, here in Velika Novosilka or uh, in Orkiv? Uh, Chuck, tell me you're speaking into a muted mic. Oh, oh yeah, tell me. Oh, yeah, I got to watch this. I think we've got one of those. It turns off when you turn it on. Um, I think it's both places. Uh, remember, you, Ukraine thus far this summer, it's Ukraine that's picking the pace and place of battle. Uh, Vlika Novoslika is just far enough away from, from Orkiv that uh, Russian logistic decisions have to be made 20, 30, 40 miles south of the zero line. So Ukraine has picked, uh, picked their fights in positions that it is not easy for Russia to uh, uh, supply both of them. And more importantly, uh, it, Ukraine has forced Russia to uh, disperse, right? The, these two battlefields, there's, there's, no, there's no solution for Russia to converge forces and... Uh, link up its forces that are fighting here uh, south of Nova uh, Vlika, Novoslika, and and converge onto the uh, Ukrainian pocket south of Orkiv. That that that's out of the question. So this is another one of those pillar to post battle situations. Uh, there's one other thing I, I'll also point out that east of both places, east of uh, Vlika, Novoslika, east of the Orkiv battle. Battle space at Kamiansky and South. That's the M18 highway. That's the place that goes directly 
uh, to Melitopol. Each of these battles, south of Orkiv and south of Velika Novoslika, they require Russia to, to reorient their forces, right, and, and concentrate them at these two places. And I want you to imagine, you know, when you move a large tactical element, a battalion, a brigade task group, with all its accoutrements and croutons and everything else, you know, those things, they move like big blobs, right? Like big amoebas, like slugs. And they move almost analogous to that. They're, they're slow and they kind of spread out and they have to move slowly and they leave a trail behind them, which is their logistical apparatus. And Ukraine is is fixing these two forces here, and they are nowhere near the 100% solution, which is a strike down the M18 highway. So when people say, well, the offensive isn't moving very well. Well, what the offensive had done at this point is force Russia to fan out its, its uh, military assets, its material, its men, and it's got to... It's got to pay attention to these three battle spaces and other ones we're going to talk about. So in terms of how's the offensive going, it's doing pretty well at splintering Russia's efforts, right? These three battle spaces, Kamiansky, Orkiv, and Velika Novoslika, they are mutually exclusive, right? This is Russia fighting essentially three different wars. And throw in Bakhmut, throw in Kremena, and throw in Kupiansk. And, and you can see that along the 600-mile battlefront, Ukraine is keeping the Russians fighting, on average, about 100 miles apart. And that means Russia's paying the freight, right? It means Russia's paying the freight. And in the much bigger picture, you pull up to the Napoleon-sized maps, you see that in every one of these situations, Ukraine's efforts are facilitated and uh, made easier by internal lines of communication, right? Ukraine is inside the circle. Russia is outside. Ukraine can turn and orient and attack wherever it chooses much easier than Russia, who has to maneuver right outside the barn. They have to go completely around, and Ukraine is is playing them. And what I said earlier in the pep talk portion of the program, uh, it applies in each one of these battle spaces. Russian combat effectiveness is not improving. It is on a downward spiral. And we've seen the brittleness at uh, Yurozane. We had a demonstration of the brittleness of the Russian forces. Uh, If you take out a company-sized command center in a Western army, right, the chain of command is supposed to function. Whatever officers or senior NCOs who are not killed when they hit the command tent will execute the plan of the day, right? They will continue to carry out commander's intent. Communications vertically will be affected, but their lateral communications shouldn't be. Okay, taking out a headquarters is a much more survivable in a Western force because lateral lines of communication, the horizontal lines of communication are open. And remember, 
tactical authority is is delegated down the chain of command in a Western army. You take out the headquarters element in a post-Soviet, a Russian-trained army, and you have not only decapitated the leadership, but those forces, they don't have lateral communication. They are not authorized to make tactical decisions on the battlefield. So they're going to be waiting for vertical vertical communications to be reestablished. And I will tell you what, because their morale is low, because their combat efficiveness is, is fading, you cut them off from vertical command and they're going to turn and run, right? They're going to vote with their feet. They're going to make a tactical decision, and that is break contact. Here's what happened in Eurozane. Remember, everything that that Ukraine has to do to put together an airstrike, right? It isn't like in my day when I got on a, you know, I got on the UHF radio and I'm I'm talking to an airplane that's been rotating around my position uh, for 45 minutes at 40,000 feet, and I can just give him an eight-digit grid, and he's going to make it go away. No. It's Ukrainian aircraft have got to fly into the target at 100 feet, transonic. They've got to be there on time, and then Ukrainian forces were in a position to exploit that strike the minute it happened. Right. As the as the pieces are falling down, as the roof tiles are tumbling back to earth, they hit that target. When those Russians decided to break contact, I can't hear from headquarters anymore. Therefore, I'm running. Well, they ran down the only road out of town. Right. The T.O. nine, the T.O. five eighteen, where they ran right into a Ukrainian artillery barrage. That's what I mean about a brittle force. And that little battle of Eurozane is going to be repeated on scale that up, right? Scale that up. It's going to happen in in other places as well. But this was a good microcosm and a good thing to study kind of in detail because when the big punches come, and uh, maybe we're looking at one at Robotane, Maybe Robotny, maybe we're looking at one here, but when the big punches come, this is how they're going to break through, just like this. Coordinated close air support and adroit, uh, you know, uh, eager uh, forces who are in a position to exploit uh, enemy weaknesses on the spot. So Eurozone is a tiny place uh, it's a village of about a thousand people. Uh, you might not be able to tell that from the map, uh, but in Orkiv, uh, in uh, Velika Novosilka, uh, what strikes me, Chuck, as is happening with the Ukrainian forces, uh, as they advance, uh, they, they never, ever break engagement with the Russian forces uh, going in reverse. Uh, and some of those Russian forces, uh, especially uh, uh, south here of Velika Novosilka on the TO518, the retreating forces are meeting uh, Russian reinforcements. That must cause a lot of confusion. Yeah, it 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 does. It, it, here is a little weird thing: um, on a battlefield, uh, you could you could hear rifles going off, right? 
and every veteran who's listening to this knows the difference between what an M M16 and M4 sounds like and what an AK47 sounds like. They 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 sound different. Uh and the equipment of the bad guys is generally different. But to add confusion for the Russian soldiers and uh you know the Ukrainians are are better equipped uh, to deal with this, but the confusion of battle, uh, often the Russian soldiers, because their own communication and their their own command and control being more rigid is less effective. So they're in contact and they don't exactly know who they're in contact with. And talked about this on a, on a number of occasions, you know, what one of the greatest things to do to your enemy on a battlefield, and it's been my lucky experience to have done this a couple of times, is you get the enemy shooting at each other, right? And Ukraine goes into every one of these battles with electronic warfare and uh, signals intelligence units close to the front, and they are monitoring and interfering with Russian communications. And fanning the flames of that battlefield uh, confusion. And like the, like the uh, Orhiv salient, we're, we're dealing with a very similar sort of battle space in that, you know, the axis of battle is rectilinear. It is north and south. It goes down a highway, which is both a military objective for both sides and a military necessity for both sides. And... Uh, in in the case of uh, actually in the case of both sides, uh, that line of communication and control, uh, you know that that LOCS, there's only one of them, and they're both vulnerable to attack. But the other thing that Ukraine does by by pursuing the fleeing enemy, and this was a tactic that the Viet Cong were absolute masters of, remain so close to the enemy that he can't safely call in artillery fire, right? You're so close to him uh, that he has to worry about that artillery falling on, on friendlies. Uh, not that the Russians would care so much about that, but it is, it, that's what you want to do. You, you think, of, think of the momentum of battle. It's always easier to attack you get going forward and you press forward. What is so difficult is to take a blow and, 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 you know, absorb it and fall back. That is, that's what's so difficult. And we've talked about this on, on a number of occasions, but I'm a right. Oh, uh, lost your audio there for a second, Chuck. Oh, oh, Okay. Thanks. Uh, rifle squad deployed, you know, in a line across your piece of paper. I want to break contact. One fire team is going to lay down a base of fire. The other, the other is going to fall back. Remember that little moniker. I'm up. He sees me. I'm down. That's the increment of movement. However far a, a soldier loaded with 60 pounds can go in three seconds, right? Then you hit the deck, you turn around you lay down a base of fire. The other fire team switches their weapons on safe. They turn around. I'm up. He sees me. I'm down. Okay. That's the way it's done. The first time 
one of those fire teams or scale it up, one of those squads go bigger. One of those companies decides that they've done enough fighting for a day, or maybe I'm going to run a little bit farther than three seconds. Maybe I'm going to go a hundred yards. Maybe I'm just going to go to the next crossroads. The whole thing falls apart, right? That whole thing falls apart. You can see where training, communication, dare I say it, leadership, morale, you can see where all of that happens. Because when those Russian cats in Zavatne, when the headquarters went up, they said, we're going. We're going. It also was a bad decision, right? Bad decision. If I was there in contact, they got the headquarters tent, and I'm looking at the only road out of town, I wouldn't have gone on it, right? That wasn't the smart thing to do. The fact that it was done tells me a whole lot, not just about command and control, but about training and the individual decision-making of those Russian riflemen. Bad call. And that's in microcosm. That's how Ukraine's going to advance. That's how small battles are won. And on a much larger scale, that's how big battles are won. I, I just uh, a last question here at Velika Novosilka. Uh, then we'll go to Bakhmut. Uh, but uh, to the uh, the West uh, on the map, uh, engagement uh, around uh, Prayutne, uh, this is where Ukrainians have stayed engaged. It, it strikes me that uh, West of uh, Starom uh, Lenivka, uh, the Ukrainians have an opportunity here they could, if they strike down uh, from uh, Prayutny, uh, they could begin uh, some kind of encirclement here. There could be uh, another Russian salient that is um, really exposed. I'm 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 putting you in for War College Student of the Month, Alan. <laughs> you are you're absolutely right. So all eyes on the TO518 highway and to the uh to the west of it, folks, little little farm village, uh Prayutni, there is a road that goes north and south. Uh, uh from uh Novopil, uh which is a sister town to Rivnopil. There's a road going north and south uh, through Pryutny, and Russia cannot uncover that flank. And once again, there are no, there are only a few roads over there. There's only one that goes north and south, and it doesn't connect up to the TO518. So lateral movements of of Russian forces, resupply, reinforcement troops, they have to expose their flank to the zero line. Uh, it's open terrain. It, this is agricultural land. Uh, if you are looking at the map, you see those little green rectangles all over it. Those are bands of trees uh, planted long time ago for soil conservation. And those are the only cover uh, let me change that. Those are the only 
concealment uh, on the battlefield. And concealment is not the same as cover, right? If I hide myself in, uh, in a salad bowl, I have concealment, but I don't have any cover, right? Uh, so there's no telling when uh, Ukraine will strike at Pryutny or how far they're going to go. What, what was a little surprising to me uh, was the, the contact point uh, planted to the south of uh, Zavitny, Bajana. I, I'm surprised that they're in contact there. I'm surprised, but I'm not as dismayed as the Russians in uh, Zavitny are, because that puts the Ukrainians astride the only road out of town. So we'll see. And uh, Alan, I think you you may be right because were I a local Ukrainian commander, I don't think I'm ready right now uh, to go down to Staroma Linkvika. I, you know, that is going to be a tough place uh, to fight. Uh, it's going to be street to street. And uh, you know what? I don't really want to fight street to street. And what we want to do always, folks, you want to go around an urban area and converge on it in the rear. You, you don't want to fight, if you don't have to, doorknob to doorknob. So good call, Alan. And uh, let's all watch beautiful downtown Prayutni and see what's going on. So with this, uh, we're going to move uh, another map away. Uh, it's the Bakhmut. Uh, this is the, uh, the fourth tweet. In the nest, we're going a little backwards. Uh, I blame the crash on this. Uh, but uh, if we go to Bakhmut, uh, here again, uh, uh, Ukraine uh, really pressing forward against uh, Russian forces with a lot of success, uh, having gained the high ground in Klishvika, uh, having uh, executed these these. Uh, these raids uh, to the north in Solidar, uh, Bakhmut is actually looking pretty good for Ukraine. Yeah, it's you know, and it and and it's looking better if you uh, bear in mind what what I hypothesize is the is the purpose of fighting in Bakhmut, which is fixing Russian forces here uh, in a place that. Uh, remains strategically and tactically uh, irrelevant. Uh, this this city was taken at extraordinary cost by Russia. Uh, a conquest, if you want to call it that, uh, made uh, primarily made possible by the, uh, if not senseless, then uh, I don't know abhorrent slaughter daily of hundreds of Russian prisoners uh, used as meat shields and tripwires by, by Wagner forces. Uh, starting to the north, uh, looking around uh, the Solidar uh, area, uh, remember on the previous, in the previous 36 hours, uh, Ukrainian forces were in contact south of Bakhmutsky, which is itself south of Solidar. Uh, we suspected at the time that was a raid 
turns out uh, looks like indeed it was. But that was a uh, that was a pretty deep penetration for a raid. And as Alan was pointing out, you know, it is one of those occasions that necessitated Russia uh, turning its artillery around, in some cases 180 degrees, to fire on a town that was allegedly in their possession. Uh, late breaking, breaking development that didn't make it onto the uh, Bakhmut map was a JDAM strike uh, on a building in Solidar, which was a headquarters uh, node. And again, 2,000 pounds of bomb will definitely knock your paperweight off your desk. Uh, I, I don't have much follow-up information, but I expect it was a, a high-value target. Again, uh, dropping a JDAM for the Ukrainian Air Force is not as easy as it is for uh, an American counterpart unit, right? It takes a lot more for Ukraine to get get an aviation strike in on target and, you know what, frankly, even get home. So Solidar has been, uh, has been uh, the object of uh, Ukrainian attention here. Uh, so going south, uh, you know, we, we of course deal again the, the uh, TO513 highway, which is the north and south uh, artery, artery in this battle space. Uh, again, if you don't have a map, uh, the line basically conforms uh, in a north and south, uh, uh, very close to the TO513 going north and south. And uh, in and south of Bakhmut, the line of contact basically conforms to the north-south railroad. Uh, there is a little, little nose, if you'd like, uh, sticking out uh, where Russian forces just north of the city of Bakhmut, north of Yehidni, and in the vicinity of Dovo Vasilivka. Uh, Russia is maintaining a little pocket across the... M M03 highway. Uh, they launched and uh, wished they hadn't, uh, and almost one of the daily Russian uh, advances on uh, Bodemvinka. Again, a Russian force attacking along the same axis of attack across the same ground with the same force posture, uh, repeating a pattern of attack. Uh, for scores of times, quite possibly, this might have been the 100th attack launched on Bodemvinka. Not surprisingly, uh, about half the Russian forces that were sent against Bodemvinka uh, didn't reach the target and uh, didn't return to the zero line. And uh, again, I'm looking at a at a uh, at a Russian attack, and I see no corresponding plotted artillery strikes. So, again, Russia is launching attacks. Obviously, these are ordered from above. They are, in this case, likely a platoon-sized attack. It was not supported by artillery, and uh, to the surprise of no one, including the Russian soldiers selected for this mission, uh, it did not succeed. So going south to uh, Klishvika, uh, Ukraine is consolidating its control uh, over the, the, the high ground 
to the west of Klishvika. Uh, we know from uh, video of a recent Russian attack that Ukrainian forces are actually in the village. Uh, I don't want to congratulate uh, Ukraine on controlling it. It's, it's a very hot and contested uh, little town, but Ukraine is in it and the Russians are not. They are on the other side of the, uh, of the rail right-of-way. It's a very hot place to be. Uh, Russia has been pressing forward its attacks, and as Latin pointed out, uh, likely uh, the Air Force has been spurred to greater efforts and as a result, they lost another KA-52 helicopter, their second of the day, and that was shot down by Ukrainian forces just south of Klishvika, uh, where south of the downed helicopter, uh, Ukraine is pushing its own attacks on Andrivka and south of there in Kurdimivika. Uh, so Ukraine is, is, is pressing here. And... I'm not sure, folks, if they uh, intend or desire or have any plans to, uh, to puncture uh, Russian positions here around Bakhmut. They may indeed have them, and that may be in the cards. But we talk about the 80% solution here is just keeping Russia around Bakhmut just making them do the things they do every day. These little, these little probes, like uh, the one that happened at uh, Bodavinka, they, they appear to be military insigni militarily insignificant operations. And in the big scheme of things, they are. But it is Russia losing one or two, possibly three or four, infantry fighting vehicles in every one of these failed attacks. They lose 10, 15, 20, 30 guys in every one of these attacks. They are carried out to no military purpose. They don't do anything. Uh, one of the overhead images that I saw today is from the vicinity of Dovo Vasilivka. It was uh, about a one acre plot filled with stacked Russian bodies. It was their casualty collection point. Uh, that might give you an idea of what a militarily insignificant operation means for the Russian soldiers who carried it out, right? And again, if you feed your soldiers a constant diet of defeat, if you show them that you don't, you don't care that they attacked over the same ground using the same force posture. You don't care that they've done it a hundred times and it's never worked. We're going to do it again. It has a bad effect on combat effectiveness. And that's back mood, folks. <laughs> so, Chuck, I, I know we have only a few more minutes. Uh, we, we should talk about Sea Babies, uh, the, the new... A Ukrainian unmanned surface vessel uh, deployed in the Black Sea. Are sea babies going to sing the lullaby of the Russian Black Feet, the fleet? 
Yeah, rock me on the water, baby, as uh, Jackson Brown says. And if you are an old surfer like me, you got to love that song. So what happened here, folks? Uh, just about sundown, uh, local time, about uh, 7 o'clock, 730, uh, a Russian uh, 22160 project patrol ship, uh, sometimes called a missile corvette, uh, this is a, a warship smaller than a destroyer, uh, about the size of a destroyer escort, but you wouldn't call it that because its missions are completely different. Uh, this is a ship armed with caliber cruise missiles, and uh, their classes are being updated with uh, uh, better anti-air defense systems, uh, often to the point of... Uh, quite literally strapping a TOR air defense system to their helicopter deck, which uh, I would suggest as a naval officer, uh, if you take a land-based air defense vehicle and bolt it to your flight deck, you might not exactly, well, I'd just say this, your results may vary, but that isn't going to work. Uh, so there were two, uh, two of these uh, patrol ships out. They were 270 uh, kilometers southwest of uh, Sevastopol. We're talking open ocean. And two of them were attacked, one at 1,900 hours, the other one at 2,200 hours. So about three hours apart, uh, Russian naval, uh, naval, I'm sorry, Ukrainian uh, naval drones attacked these ships. Uh, Russia, of course, said these uh, these naval drones were destroyed, uh, but that's what they said uh, following the successful strike on the uh, Russian uh, Rapuchka-class LST. So the sun will come up uh, here soon. What time is it? Uh, it's 5.30 in the morning, uh, Kiev time. Uh, sun will be up soon, and we'll see. Uh but, uh, you know, with these naval drones, it is not so much whether they succeed or fail, although that is important. Uh, the message to uh, Russian combatant commanders in the Black Sea is you're not safe anywhere, right? You are on patrol 275 kilometers from shore. Uh, you are operating in your missile launch box and uh, you're having uh, Bellinis in the wardroom and you get attacked by this souped up surfboard and uh, you've got to be at general quarters all the time. Whether or not this, this, this attack uh, succeeded or failed, uh, to our Russian listening guests, I'll tell you that this attack was undertaken because there are dozens of these Ukrainian naval drones and they are scattered all over the Black Sea in operational areas that are used by the Russian Navy. And write this down, Russian listening guests. These naval drones, uh, they go dormant during the day. They stop. Some of them submerge so that they are awash. So they are not detectable during the day. You can't see them in overhead imagery or they'll be very hard to see. They have no appreciable sonar contact. They are in the surface zone. They can't be picked up. They're not running their engines. They are completely dormant. 
And when the sun comes, goes down, timers are activated, they surface and communicate with higher headquarters, who tells them, because there is overhead imagery of the Black Sea, there is a Russian target within 10 kilometers of you on bearing 270, converge and attack the target. That's what you're up against in the Black Sea. And it'll be a matter of time, but it will be inevitable that one of these Russian combatants is going to be sunk. And it likely will be in a situation where that little Russian patrol ship is fighting off two or three naval drones. And just like the Moskva, they're going to take their eye off the air defense ball and they're going to eat a Neptune. That's going to happen. But for a nation that doesn't really have a Navy, <laughs> Ukraine's doing pretty well in the Black Sea. And we'll see. We'll see what happened tomorrow with these, with, these, with these two ships. And I'll remind you, if you happen to be on that ship and listening, uh, tomorrow will be a long day. And uh, there are more naval drones out there, and they are operating off the roadside of Sevastopol. You're not safe anywhere. You're just not. These are roughly the equivalent of naval mines, except when they're commanded to, they will converge on and strike you. So it's fascinating. And Admiral Stravides talked about this the other day. Uh, there has never been a capability like this in warfare. The United States Navy, although it had unmanned surface vessels, it, it didn't have this ability. This is a niche. This is a weapon that was created by Ukrainians, right? the nation that was the brains of the Soviet Union. I'm not sure if Moskva was built in Ukrainian shipyards, but she might have been. I know that several other Russian capital ships. She was. Uh, she was. She was? Thank you. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I'm glad you brought that up. Whoever said that, good on you. Good on you. And it just goes to show, right? I... I'm not just saying that because I'm in the tank for Ukraine, and I am, by the way. I cash those big Ukrainian paychecks every week because I'm a good propagandist. But Russian aerospace, Russian rocketry, Russian space systems, Russian shipbuilding, Russian missile technology, folks, the check in every one of those boxes, it goes to Ukrainian scientists and Ukrainian engineers. Dare I add nuclear power? dare I add, nuclear weaponry. Again, Ukraine, an innovative, freedom-loving people. And man, let's give them what they need to win this war. Uh, thank you, Chuck. I, I know time is short. Uh, and so uh, we're going to close off uh, tonight's bullet points. But I think the, the bottom line here is whether uh, you're a Russian in the Black Sea uh, or a Russian almost anywhere uh, in uh, occupied Ukraine, uh, you are not safe. Uh, so don't think that you are safe. You're not safe on the waves. Uh, you're not safe uh, anywhere in uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, Zaporizhia, Kherson. There are partisan eyes on you and that there are Ukrainians 
engage with you. I think that's the bottom line tonight, Chuck. It's, uh, you know, folks, it, look, we're in a long war. It's been a long war. It's going to go on. But I, I'm telling you, every day reduces Russia's combat effectiveness. And just to put the cherry on the top of the, of the you know, this recent naval attack in the Black Sea, if you are constantly at general quarters working to defend your ship, your offensive bandwidth is limited, right? And that goes for every Russian combatant uh, on land or at sea. Uh, Ukraine struck a battalion training area so far in the rear that they were carrying out administrative rifle training. They aren't safe. And, uh, you know, that's good. If you think things are tough for us, they are much tougher for the Russians. Things are falling apart. Their guys are mutinying. They're not, and they're engaged right now in two extremely uh, consequential battles uh, for Robotny and, uh, and south of Urizane. Those are fights that Russia has to win or, dare I say, two Ukrainian pincers are going to close in on Tukmak. Next stop, Melitopol. Then that'll be a good day for us, Alan. We'll be busy then. <laughs> we'll be busy and hopefully without glitches. Uh, I just want to go to Prince coming up to co-host, then to Stephen, then to Alex. Prince, go ahead. Well, there's there's a couple of things I just wanted to say real quick. Um, first, um, Chuck, you could have cover and concealment both in one with a salad bowl if you turned the salad bowl upside down and hid under it. <laughs> I almost said that exact thing. And uh, we've been working a long time together, Heather, because we're starting to think alike. Yeah, the other thing is, you know, off the list um, of, of safe places that might it, where it might not be safe for Russians um, is Moscow. Um, it seems that uh, another drone may have gotten through and uh, made a, a crash in some place near the middle of Moscow. I'm still monitoring that a little bit, but um, it sure looks like another drone got through. Isn't that a pity? And, uh, you know, folks, we talk about this too, right? We, we talk about uh, Ukraine having to divert its air defense assets to defend its cities and the shoes on the other foot. Except uh, one of those places is the capital of a, a superpower. And I love that little meme that's up and it shows Putin uh, sitting in an interrogation room with a guy sitting across from him and Putin's in a straitjacket. And the psychiatrist is saying, that superpower, is it in the room with us now? <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. I just had those couple of little things I wanted to add real quick. And uh, it's been a pleasure tonight, Chuck and Alan. I'll hand it back to you. And uh, Michelle and I are standing by when you're ready. Uh, so, I, I, Chuck, do you need to go? Uh, let's see. I, I might have 10 more minutes. I'm looking about, uh, at the, at the brush fires I have burning here. I think we can, we can ease out if you can, if 10 is good, Alan, I think I can give you that. Okay. We'll do it in eight minutes. Uh, Stephen and Alex and Leeway, 
that gives you each about, oh, a minute and a half. Uh, actually, uh, Alex is before me, please. Okay, Alex, 90 seconds. Uh, Alex, I, I'm you... okay, I don't have a question. Thank you. Okay, so uh, Stephen, back to you, then to Leeway. Yeah, it uh, was just something to underscore perhaps uh, in my um, quasi-political diatribe earlier on. Uh, I didn't uh, um, get through uh, the message that actually I think Chuck was trying to, uh, well, was eloquently getting through um, in much of the last thing, few sentences that he was saying in, in, in the in the last segment, um, which is that um, Ukraine has uh, achieved something extraordinary uh, that is almost unprecedented in the in the history of battle. Um, the integration of vast numbers of different weapon systems with extraordinary alacrity and um, effectiveness. Uh, I think that perhaps some of the listeners don't really understand how difficult it is to integrate varied weapon systems. Um, and Ukraine has managed this with um, extraordinary aplomb. That's all. Thank you very much. You know, it's really well put. And it it, it can literally, it, it can come back down to small arms ammunition. Uh, you know, I, I see Ukrainian soldiers carrying AK pattern rifles that shoot, you know, two different kinds of infra, uh, ammunition. That's 762 intermediate and uh, 5.45. And then there's uh, M4 pattern rifles, Western pattern rifles that shoot 556. Uh, they have different artillery systems. The Western artillery systems fire 155 millimeter ammunition. Uh, the legacy Russian systems fire 152 millimeter. Uh, mortars, indirect fire weapons, uh, heavy machine guns, auto cannons, etc. And so everything that a Western logistician has to face, the problems are, are not just doubled, but tripled, maybe even quadrupled for, for Ukrainian logisticians. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, one more hurdle that they're overcoming. And, uh, you know, uh, whenever I, I get asked occasionally, what does Ukraine need? I just hey, look, look, everything, they need everything, uh, from band-aids to bombs. They need, they need the whole enchilada. And Michelle, yes, I absolutely. see you out there. I haven't spoken uh, to you in a while. May, hope you're good. May, may I just interject one last thing? Yes, they do. But I, I suppose the, the point that I was ultimately trying to make is that not only do they, but it has been demonstrated already that they can integrate everything. And that, to your point earlier, um, perhaps both in the politicians and the military logisticians' uh, viewpoint, um, you know they're they're used to dealing with these you know weapons chains these 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 political problems which um, seem to present great issues uh, but but when presented with an existential risk 
the right nation, and this is the right nation, can deal with those problems much more swiftly than anybody uh, might assume. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely well put. Absolutely. Uh, it's a hard fight, folks. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the side that can uh, improvise, adapt, and overcome is going gonna, is gonna to win it. Uh, so, Leeway, last question. Uh, then uh, Thursday night, Bullet Points comes to a conclusion. Uh, Chuck and I will be out. Leeway, go hey, ahead. I'm, I apologize at possibly opening a can of worms um, after a great evening. But I'd like a little help. I'm going to um, my congressman's office tomorrow and from periodic visit. And I'm doing a little preparation, and I wondered if you might give me a little help. The last few days, we've had some really high-level, um, knowledgeable um, interviews here on the space. And I heard some very opposing views on responsiveness of the U.S. government to uh, meeting Ukraine's needs. I heard that we're not sending what they need, and I heard um, that MOD um, Sir, um, Minister Reznikov picks up the phone and and um, Secretary Austin says it's on its way. And so I'm wondering if somebody here in the space might be able to reconcile how these very high-level people told us, at least as I heard it, two different things on this. That, am I making sense here? Uh, I, I think if you're trying to explain to me, you are preaching to the choir that the government will say one thing, do another, and intend a third. And I, I think there will always be those in Washington who will congratulate themselves uh, no matter what happens. But, you know, I, Ukraine needs everything. And I think a, a, a pressing need is more capable air defense. Uh, there's only one Patriot battery from the United States in Ukraine. That, that should shock everybody. Uh, Germany has sent two. Uh, the latest capable air defense to arrive is two more Iris-T systems, again, uh, from Germany. Norway supplied NASDAM systems, which is the national slash Norwegian standard air defense system, an extremely capable unit. Ukraine could use more of those. They could use uh, much less capable, but uh, give it to them. Uh, Avenger, Shorad, uh, essentially a multi-barreled stinger launcher on, uh, on a Humvee. Uh, there are hundreds of Hawk missile batteries uh, retired in possession of the United States. Uh, not the greatest system, getting a little long in the teeth, but absolutely better than what's there right now, which is not enough. So uh, I'm glad you're going to your congressman. I Listen, I absolutely congratulate you. And, you know, just going and speaking politely with your representative and uh, urging them, you know, uh, they need everything. So God bless you. Okay. 
going to Washington. I'm, (laughs) I have a lot of respect for the people who were talking to us in the last few days, and it's just hard to reconcile the messages. Um, But I didn't feel like it was just the, you know, my government talking, talking points kind of thing. But okay, I, I, um, I think what you're saying uh, confirms most of what I'm hearing. Um, so I appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck, and thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, Lee Wei, great opening question with your member of Congress. Just a, a, a big blue sky question. Are you doing everything you, quen- you can to support Ukraine and make certain they win? Just a big Big question to open, and don't say anything when your member of Congress uh, stutters or goes silent. Eventually, he or she will have to answer your question. Uh, Prince, go ahead. Just when I closed what I had in my up on the screen, actually, you know, I've been a little bit passionate. About, <laughs> I've been a little bit passionate about this the last uh, little bit. And uh, Leeway, I just sent you a message um, because for me, what it is, is um, what does Ukraine say about that? And evidently, I have the wrong article linked in here, and that sort of makes me mad. But there was an article um, with um, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, and I hope I just reversed those. Um, and, and what it was, it was in a creative form on August. Nope. I screwed it up on August 12th. And, um, if you look, um, on that day on a creative form, you can find another article that, um, very specifically talks about what Ukraine says they need. And when you listen, you hear what the um, ambassador to, of Ukraine to the United States. She has very good communication with them and they work very closely on what those packages are going to be. In fact, I saw another quote today from President Zelensky and I don't remember if I put it here or in another spot. Yes, it is. It says, President Zelensky says, we constantly monitor and su- the supply of equipment and ammunition, as well as the pace of our own production. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Defense have been, have, um, been instructed to work with our partners on that, so that, oh, sometimes I only write part of the tweet in my notes and I have to open it. <laughs> um so that the next defense packages have exactly what we need. And I think that is the point, is that there's constant communication between the government of Ukraine and the governments of other countries so that the next package has exactly what they need and exactly when they need it. Um, you know, I, I understand Ukraine needs everything and they need it now is a great concept. But if we send Ukraine everything, we send it absolutely all now. Ukraine doesn't have the soldiers or the staff probably to be able to deal with all of that. 
So Ukraine is saying, this is what we need, and we need it by this time. And it sounds to me, from the information that I've read from President Zelensky, from the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, that that is sort of what's happening. I'm sure there's things on their wish list that they do want that the countries are not providing yet. I'm sure of that. I have no doubt. Um, but that, uh, but, but to say that, uh, basically what I want to point out is that they focus very strongly on what, um, what Ukraine needs and when they need it. And they communicate that with other countries very strongly. The other thing that I'll point out real quick is if you look on my profile and look at my pin tweet, there is a tweet there. Uh, that I made a while ago. And uh, the first one in that is from Paul Massaro. And that lists all of the resolutions that are going through the House and the Senate right now. And, uh, you know, one of them is to, is a resolution to send attackums to Ukraine. Another one is uh, to confiscate $350 billion in Russian assets. Another to designate Russia a terrorist state. Another to embrace Ukrainian victory. Another one to designate Wagner a terrorist organization. And another one to recognize genocide that's happening in Ukraine. So asking them to sign on to these resolutions as co-sponsors is a good way to go, too. Yeah, it it really is a leeway. Listen to Prince. uh, Follow her tweets. Uh, look at all those tweets uh, in Prince's uh, timeline. Uh, Chuck, you and I are going to sign out here tonight. Uh, It's been a long night through glitches, and uh, and we've made it. We've made it through all the maps. Uh, I know I'll see you again next Tuesday for sure. I, I won't be here tomorrow, Saturday, or Sunday. Uh, but, uh, you know, Chuck, you keep me going strong. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, well, thank, thank you, Alan. It was, a, it was a great show. Thanks, thanks to everybody who stayed with us and tuned back in. And, uh, uh, Alan, great show. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening in. And, uh, Prince, we leave it in your capable hands. Michelle, I haven't spoken to you in a while, but uh, good on you. And uh, we leave you in capable hands. Thanks, everybody, and really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you, if not uh, on Tuesday for bullet points, but maybe before then. So thanks again. Good night, everybody. Uh, Good night, Chuck. Uh, Thank you.